Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those who don't subscribe to Agenda, welcome to the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, how you doing? I'm here. How about you, mate? Doing well? Yeah, I'm doing well. I figured it's our second to last uh, episode for a new episode, so I would switch up the intro a little bit. How'd you like it? I was caught entirely off guard and wasn't ready to speak yet. Yeah, I know. It's pretty great. Uh, yeah, here we are, Spencer. We are marching our way through season eight. Um, tempo, pacing, plot be damned. We are going through this thing. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm. just watched, uh, well, we, we not just watched, we did a reaction pod where, where we recorded after we just watched, but now we have done rewatches. We have our notes for episode five. We didn't know the name of the episode when we did a reaction pod. We do now. It's called The Bells Like the Name. Big fan of the name. Mm-hmm. The name's good. Um, and we are going to go through, we're going to talk about season eight, episode five, the bells will start with a recap, which is going to be a very interesting recap because it's not a very dialogue heavy episode, which makes our next segment, best line of the episode, even more strange. And then Spencer, you have some book nerd bitching topics for us. I've got a couple, but as said, this is an episode that is really much focused on the visuals it wants to show and the emotional feeling you get in response to it. So I'm drawn from pretty different to separate parts of history. There's not much I can really rely on this episode to bitch about. At least not from a book and history standpoint. Okay. Um, okay. So we have talked, we talked during the reaction pod. I think you were pretty positive about the episode during the reaction pod. You just tipped me off that that's changed a little bit. I'm going to give you a few kernels. I'm going to argue with you, obviously, because I thought the episode was pretty good. But I'm going to give you a few kernels. Um, and I'm going to start with the opening credits slash previously on. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something, Spencer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I see what you did there, D&D. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't do character development in a previously on. That is unacceptable. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Um, it, it was arguably I'd say one of the more powerful scenes they had of the entire episode. Oddly enough, in terms of that wow. focusing on Danny and the the dialogue that's going on in her head in the background. Um, that was well done and interesting. I wish it had gotten play in the actual episode or in, you know an episode in its own right. I just think that's really cheap. Like, that's spectacularly cheap to try to do character development in a previously on by how you mash everything together. Like, ugh, I did not it, like that at all. It, it There's a lot of signs in the last few episodes, particularly in this one, that they either are rushing or feel rushed. Uh, and I think that was one of them. Because that was a very obviously important scene and well done in terms of that buildup and reckoning back to the past and framing events in the same way as the Mad King. It's kind of a necessary degree of foreshadowing for this episode to work in any sense. And so for that to be in what almost everyone skips before the credits is an odd move. Agreed. Very odd. No change to the credits. Spencer, I don't think we're going to see any change to the credits. Um, Okay. We can't see all the castles burning for next episode, please. It would be pretty funny if the intro for the finale is just like a burning chessboard. That would be that. That would actually be good. I don't think they'll do it again. I think they've given us what they want to give us. It was impressive in the first few episodes, and we just have to be happy with that. Yep, yep. Okay, we start. We are in Dragonstone, mm-hmm. and Varys is writing a scroll. I didn't get all of the words that are on it, but it's very clear that he's he's sending out ravens, um, informing the lords of Westeros about Jon's true parentage. Well, was he writing? Well, it was never directly shown that he was sending out the ravens. He was certainly writing the notes. Do we believe and assume that these were being sent out by some means or whatever else? Yeah, that's my guess. I mean, you're right. We don't we don't see him actually load the raven and, and send it out the window. But I mean, we see him writing the same message multiple times. We do, and I'm will I'm willing to hope 
that it does, because it can make what ultimately happens to this character a bit more bearable in my mind. Um, um, yeah. Because what we're directly shown, I don't feel is in keeping with the character. But we're going we're gonna to debate that when it comes. Sure. Um, okay. Um, a little bird comes in, and then we have this piece of dialogue, which is, um, I did not catch it right away, but of course, upon rewatches, I did. Um, nothing. She won't eat. We'll try again at supper. I think they're watching me. Who? Her soldiers. Of course they are. That's their job. What have I told you, Martha? The greater the risk, the greater the reward. Go on. They'll be missing you in the kitchen. So clearly, Varys is trying to poison Danny here, right? Yeah. I, I, I didn't necessarily get that on the first watch, but I agree. That seems the most logical interpretation, that he's not only preparing the succession... Pro- he's not only sending out messages to get everybody on, on, t- on, on plan for the succession process, he's trying to directly instigate it. Yeah, and I mean, this is a very... Like, Varys is usually very calculated, and this is a real... Um, I mean, he's going in hot here. This is um, suicidal. This yeah. is plain. This seems, in my mind, plainly suicidal. He's doing all this with the full expectation that he's not going to survive until tomorrow. Because I, it, it, as you said, this is very unusually direct for him. Yeah. I mean, to, even, to even be on scene while he's instigating this is, is not in keeping with his usual actions. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but, you know, I think he, he feels a sense of urgency here because Danny is going to uh, take King's Landing and everybody's a little um, scared about how that might look, rightfully so, in retrospect. Um, John arrives in Dragonstone and Varys is there to greet him. John informs him that the Northern Army's just crossed the Trident and will be at King's Landing in two days. John asks about Danny. She's apparently not visiting with anyone. She won't eat. And John says she doesn't need to be alone, which, I mean, okay. I mean, duh. Like, I, this isn't like some <laughs> helpful fucking, John. Yeah, it's not some fucking great insight you have into her. Like, I mean, if she's just depressed and not eating and not seeing people, then yeah, somebody needs to go check on her. If you're looking for insight from John, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> There's a lot. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> and then Varys takes his shot. Look, hey, he took it. Uh, he explains the coin flipping thing, you know, uh, which is that comes from the books, right? That that is just, that that is very much from the books. It's also in reference previously on the show. We saw Barristan Selmy reference it when he was talking with um, Jorah and everybody else about it is a continual, ongoing concern about the Targaryens about. Whatever they are, it will be brilliant. But it's just a question of whether that brilliance manifests an incredible accomplishment in a way that is positive for the realm or in stark, dangerous stark. madness that will destabilize it to the core. Stark. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Varys takes a shot. Um, he says, we both know what she's about to do. I don't think that John does. Um, I think Varys has an indication. He probably doesn't know how bad it's going to be, but I don't think John really does. He. Do- I don't think John would be you know, leading a, a army into King's Landing if he thought that she actually was going to burn a bunch of innocent people. Um, John, John is one of several characters of the court this episode that is surprisingly passive. And so I agree with you. The only way I'm willing to accept how very passive and almost cowed he is acting with respect to Danny is that he doesn't have a full sense about what's about to happen in the way that Varys does. Because he's walking seemingly without objection into this in a way that would not be in keeping with John we've seen before if he has even the slightest inkling that the level of devastation that we see is about to occur. No, I really don't think he knows. Um, John says that's her decision to make. He reaffirms that she is still the queen, and she is his queen. John asks Varys what he wants. It's all I've ever wanted, the right ruler on the Iron Throne. I still don't know how her coin has landed, but I'm quite certain about yours. Pretty good line there from Varys. It is. 
John explains that he doesn't want the throne, and then Varys just kind of dismisses that, and he goes into this explanation that John would be a good king. Before he can finish up, John cuts him off, reaffirms Danny's the queen, and Tyrion is watching Varys take a shot here. Yep, and immediately thereafter, we see him go right to Danny. He does. Tyrion goes to visit Danny, who really not looking good. No, um, not a not good day for Danny. Not not a good day. Um, I mean, let's consider her. What's been left of her support network at this point? Um, her closest and longest term friend Jorah died in her arms, having fought, fought desperately to save her life. Uh, her probably uh, longest term advisor and closest companion Masende has been executed in front of her as a result of being on Danny's side and supporting her cause. Two of her children have died in what's probably less than the last three, four, well, time, distance between travel between locations, factory cap, last two months, we'll say. Can can we call them dragons? This whole, these are my children thing. That's not. I know, mother dragons, but yeah, there are two of her dragons who she views as her children have died probably within the last month or two. Um, Her closest thing she has to what she views as a love in her life right now has rejected her both personally and to a degree defied her authority uh her lead advisors she now knows are actively conspiring about her and defying her will again her subjects are blatantly to her face disloyal this is not the this is this is danny in a world she didn't really hope for when she came to westeros yeah pretty good reason not to put on the concealer that morning so (laughs) I, i uh i understand the lack of makeup there danny it's okay he's still looking good uh, I'm just a little worried about those fingernails, about that matted hair. Um, that's mm-hmm. not going to go. That's not going to look good here in about certain, six months. Certain mumbling about fire in the background, you know. <laughs> um, she says, uh, Tyrion says, there's something she needs to know, and she susses it out. Someone has betrayed me. Which at this point, Danny can just say that to like anything anybody say. That's probably <laughs> going to be right. She, um, she is surrounded by just disloyal assholes, really. Yeah, and Tyrion says yes, and she says Jon Snow, and Tyrion does a very slight shake of the head. Seems a little astonished that she thought it was John and says no yeah. varies. Of all um, the people you could have picked, you went with that one. Yeah, it was weird because he's like the most loyal guy that we he's have like, left. I mean, you, you could be shooting with a shotgun into all of us, and you would clearly hit a disloyal person, and you aim at John. Very weird. Danny susses out that he knows the truth. Varys knows the truth about John. His parentage because Tyrion told him after learning from Sansa, who learned from John. Danny then says John betrayed her. Now, did he? I mean, she. She did beg John not to tell, but John never said he wouldn't. Yeah, but she set the law by which their continued working together could work. And that was clearly, as she was saying to him, a queenly decree that he chose actively to defy. I mean, she may have requested it, but she ended with, I've told you how this works. This is where Danny loses people. This this whole thing, you do it because I say, because I'm the queen, because I say. Like, that's where you, you start to lose people. What's our what's our old Taiwan quote that uh, no true king ever needs say that he is the king? Yep. Yep. Um, so after this, um, Danny questions why Tyrion would tell Varys before going to her. Very solid question there from Danny. Working through the pain and uh, hitting him with some logic. Tyrion has no answer. He admits it was a mistake. And Danny insinuates that Sansa told Tyrion so that Tyrion would tell others, and he did not disappoint. Woo. And she's reading that correctly. That was very much Sansa doing a very little fingery move that worked out quite how, as she intended. It has further destabilized Dan- uh, Danny's authority. I'm going to tell you this. I don't think Danny survives the next episode. If she does, 
I don't. I'm not giving Sansa that life insurance policy. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sansa's continued survival on this earth is directly dependent on someone taking Danny out next episode. Because if she don't, I don't see how any of our named characters really survive, other than Danny and Grey Worm and Drogon. Maybe, and, maybe Tyrion. I would be disappointed if he does under what he's seen. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't feel good about Sansa if Danny survives. Um, Tyrion says, okay, look, this was a mistake. And Danny insinuates, oh no, I already, already hit that. Um, but Tyrion apologizes. And he says that really they all just wanted a better world. Varys included. Very weak attempt to, <laughs> to take up for Varys, his old friend here. This is an interesting look from Tyrion of where we've seen before when Tyrion's been willing to question Danny's decisions, he's been willing to do so directly with some force and will of his own. Here, he is a limp noodle. He is entering this room afraid of what the consequences may be, concerned about even what he's saying. This is probably one of the least strong views I think we've got of Tyrion. Maybe all uh, he, he was. He was more defiant and willful in his own trial than he is now standing before his sworn queen, who he is the hand of. Well, he's terrified of her. And, Clearly. you know, and, and if you are worried in the back of your mind that she might slip into a little mad queen, the whole not sleeping, not eating, not talking to anyone, matted hair look, really kind of, uh, that, that's triggering for that fear. It's triggering. But Tyrion's still acting directly in her interests. He's yeah. still not he's still not accepting the number of smart people around him have directly told him, Why are you continuing to do this? I think it goes back to that quote he had in the last uh, episode where he said at some point you pick the person and you back the person and you stick with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's just kind of like, I, I'm not going to do this flip-flopping thing. Like, I, I threw my cards in for Danny. I'm sticking with her now. I don't know if that's going to last I, into the next episode. I think but at least gonna, right now, that's his perspective. I think from a few close-up looks we get of his face before this episode is done, he's coming to regret that kind of die-hard loyalist perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tyrion then says, well, I guess it doesn't matter now. Basically, like, it doesn't matter what Varys wanted now. And Danny says, no, it doesn't matter now. Um, Grey Worm and the, a few unsullied soldiers go to Varys' quarters. He seems to hear the, the footsteps. He knows what's going on. He lights the scroll he's been writing on fire and weirdly takes off his rings. Why do you take off his rings? That is interesting. Uh, I'm not really necessarily sure what to, what to make of that other than he's fully expecting to die and he doesn't want anything of value to be incinerated. He may be leaving that behind for his little birds as a last payment. Huh. I like it. I'll take that. Um, so let's say we're assuming that he was writing those scrolls to go airborne. Um, yeah. how many do you think he got off before Grey Worm, Grey Worm took him? I sincerely hope at least one. I mean, th- this is basically his, you know, Ned Stannis moment of sending out the last message fully convinced. Ned's, this is the weird thing too, where I was going to say the Ned Stannis moment, but both, neither of them were sending out messages with the expectation of death. Stannis purposely, you know, left town to avoid that possibility before he started sending out messages. Ned was making, you know, alliances with people in power to avoid that threat. On the other hand, Varys is seemingly doing this in a last act of defiance in his view in protecting the realm. I hope that he's been sending out quite a few. It would suggest, in my mind, he has then a secret source of ravens, though, because I don't think he would be willing to trust the meister that's loyal to Dragonstone and Danny to send them. Well, we also 
haven't that's, seen any my, ravens or meister in dragonstone right well i mean that could be the answer of what the hell has Varys been doing during season seven i mean it, you know we talked about it on the podcast we said the most logical thing that he could be doing is just laying the groundwork to be her master of whispers which would be reconnecting with the uh with his little birds that would yeah. be you know training ravens and working with other folks to train ravens and kind of setting up a network for her so if he was doing that he could have leveraged it we just didn't see it which again you know, it's kind of a theme of this this season, and I get the internet nerds are going to beat everybody up about it. And by internet nerd, I mean myself, too. I read all these damn message boards, so don't, don't think I'm being condescending, okay? Um, but we, we, we have to you, assume a lot off camera to exactly. make certain scenes that are depicted work. Yep. We, we have to, it's almost like you, you, you find yourself making up theories so that it makes sense, which is not a good place for the show to be. Um, but I think that that answer on how many he got out is going to be answered in the final episode. I I will find what we see over the next five minutes a lot more acceptable, a lot more tolerable, if that is answered. If it isn't, I have my strong objections to this scene persist. Hmm. Okay, well, let's cut back to... uh, Oh, I just lost my notes. So, Spencer, talk a little while. Okay, so we see Varys is very much calmly expecting this. The moment he hears footsteps down the hall, he is going in. He is, he knows exactly that his death is coming. He burns the last message, which we have to assume is probably the same as the uh, other ones that he's been making. I'm assuming he's really would have hoped for a photocopier if such a thing as existed in this world. Um, and very interestingly places his rings at a bowl, which I think is, again, leaving a last gift for whatever his little birds has been able to reestablish on the island. And he is promptly carted away to a beach in the middle of the night uh, with a few of the unsullied, Danny, John, and Tyrion, they're waiting for him. Um, okay, uh, I can jump back in. Please. Tyrion tells Varys it was him. He says that right away. He makes no bones about it. Uh, Varys doesn't seem upset by this, doesn't seem surprised. And he says, I hope I deserve this. Truly, I do. I hope I'm wrong. Good line. That's what I'm nominating. That was one of the best lines of the episode of where that was a powerful line in that moment. Nomination accepted, my friend. Um, I nominate this one for best line of the episode. Tyrion looking at Varys. Goodbye, old friend. Mm-hmm. Tyrion touches his arm. Very tender moment. Danny sentences Varys to die. Doesn't let him say any last words. Little petty there. Little petty. Um, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> she says Dracarys and Drogon roast him as John looks at Danny. I don't know what to make of this look. I can't tell if this was Kit Harrington had been out late the night before. <laughs> yeah, it's um, but it, it doesn't. It's a missed opportunity for him as an actor because you could have yeah. conveyed more than what he did. Because what he conveyed to me looked sort of quizzical um, and skeptical. I mean, it's a missed opportunity there, and I feel like if that's Unless they're going to show us some kind of reaction in this moment, it's a missed opportunity to not show what the conversation led to this moment. Of where this is odd that we don't see either Tyrion or Jon offering some degree of objection to, the, to at least a death in this manner. I don't think practically, if they're going to maintain loyalty to Danny at all, they can object too much. I mean, Varys has willfully and openly committed high treason. Not only in trying to you to directly undermine her authority and support someone else's claim... But as we think, directly trying to kill her. Well, so, I think it puts John in a tough situation. I don't think John was ever going to be able to say anything about this sentencing because if he did, the immediate response from Danny is, "Oh, so you want to pardon the man who committed treason to put you on the throne?" Mm-hmm. Like he's in a tough spot there. It's a tough spot, but he's been directly willing to confront Danny 
in scenes even when she was directly threatening to kill him before. Uh, same same thing with Tyrion. That even to his face, even when she's directly but planning out his death, he's still willing to advise her and comment on things. This is an interesting. This is the first time we've ever seen both of them clearly uncomfortable with the moment, clearly watching something happen that they feel is unjust and silent in the process. And I think this scene is directly meant to offer parallels to the same scene of when the Mad King is burning um, Brandon Stark and um, Rickard Stark. Uh, in in the throne room with good men watching on saying nothing. Yeah, I actually buy this um, because I think that Danny's behavior has gotten so erratic that I think that like think about when when John first met Danny back in the Dragonstone throne room in season seven. Mm-hmm. He Danny was like throwing out these insults, but they always felt a little hollow. And there was always this good there was this like kind of goodness behind her, right? Like she right. wasn't being completely unreasonable. Um, I mean, a line here or there, but I mean, overall, her perspective was sort of somebody you could work with. I think she's gotten to the point now that John's like, I don't know how to fucking even talk to her. Like, I mean, if he was going to say something, how do you even convince her of anything at this point? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that this, I think that's the best interpretation of their respective actions. I just wish, as you said, we got to see a bit... We saw Tyrion's horror. We saw his discomfort that he made this decision. We know that he's in some ways regretting having having to do the act of loyalty towards Danny. But we haven't really seen as much of that reaction from Jon. And I felt like Kit Harrington's very gormless-looking expression as he looks at Danny <laughs> is a missed opportunity. Completely yeah. agree. Completely agree. And I have a good. I have a question for you after this next um, this next segment. So, Danny is back in the map room with Grey Worm. She's holding a neck chain that Masende brought with her from well, Essos. Can, can, can we finish just one thought? Because we just uh, did sure. lose a very major character. Okay, sure. Um, what do you make of Varys going voluntarily to his death? Um, and seemingly very openly acting as he did. Is it desperation? Is it lack of other options? Or are we trying to invent explanations for something that doesn't make sense for the character? No, I think it makes perfect sense for the character. I mean, he he didn't... He, first off, he was on a very strict timeline because Danny was going to take King's Landing the next day or the next couple of days. Um, so he didn't have a long time to work. And I, I, from his comment to John, he thinks Danny's going to do something horrific when she takes King's Landing, which it bears out to be correct. And he even says, I hope I'm wrong. If you're living in that reality where you think, oh man, in like three days, she's going to commit like brutal war crimes, then you have to kind of throw a Hail Mary. You have to be risky because he doesn't have time to be a little bit more calculated. And so he uses everything at his disposal, knowing full well he'll likely get caught. But he was doing it because he felt like, you know, someone had to. Someone had to to try to stop her. And the only way he, I mean, he can't take her dragon. He can't take her unsullied. Yeah. But he can get information to people. And now he has this information that could undermine her. That's his really, it's always his only tool in the toolbox. What do you think? I don't know why he would stay. That's the one I, I'm perfectly fine with him doing it. I'm perfectly fine with even the, the, Excessive directness of it. We've seen, particularly in the books, that when Ver- Varys is back against the wall, he's willing to get his own hands bloody to make something work. When he killed Kevin at the end, at the end of book five, for example. I'm with that to a certain degree. I'm not with the necessity of him staying. Or of not having an exit plan. Of him seemingly needing to commit a voluntary act of self-sacrifice. I feel like there's like four pillars of Varys' character in terms of that he knows everything. That... He, no one's quite sure of who he's loyal to or what his motivations are. 
that he survives everything and he's not willing to put his neck out in a way that risks it, and that his stated motivation is for the realm. I feel like the show early on really got those four and we're working with those four well. I felt like over like the last two seasons, they've really only remembered one of them. And I felt it not in keeping that Varys would do this, but in a way that could ever possibly blow back directly on him. There's many ways he could have pulled this off in a way that just led to him getting out of Dodge. He didn't need to be there to personally stay for all the messages to go out. Um, so I, I felt that his exit was not in keeping. And worth noting, it seems that the actor disagrees with me, but we've debated before uh, this, the level of bitterness that we get out of actors in last seasons with their exits. Yeah, I don't, I don't really give a shit about the actors. <laughs> like... I don't like. I feel like they, they they have such a conflict of interest when they talk about this stuff. Sure, they do. Um, it's, it, it's perfectly they, fair. And they were certainly happy to lavish praise on the showrunners when they were still getting paid. So, I, I don't. I find it disingenuous. I, I kind of I, I, I treat that as noise. Mm-hmm. But I will say that you know there's there's explanations for why Varys would stay. Um, but ultimately, I like it as a sort of artistic choice for the character because it shows he was willing to actually put his neck on the line in a way that was that was you know really severe right for the first time and the last time yeah and so i he goes out in a way that i i have a lot of a lot of fucking respect for him um yeah i mean yeah they could have written that he like ducks out on a horse and that would that would be okay i guess but also you know if he's sending the ravens and he's sending them from dragonstone he may not have been able to send the messages if he didn't stay there to try to get them out so who knows I think we've discussed before that the, probably the hardest two characters to adapt are Littlefinger and Varys, just yep. because they're purposely meant to be mysterious. They're purposely meant to be the spiders maintaining a web that goes anywhere in ways that you can't fully expect. With Varys in particular, you're never even sure if you're necessarily a character that you're talking to is him or not, given right. his master of disguise tendencies. I feel like the show has had to compress them and simplify them inherently. We saw that with Littlefinger exit... And as a result of that, particularly for the last few seasons when they're out of their direct element and are being put in a new role, a new situation, the show struggled at times to give them things to do and keep consistent with them. So I agree with you that as a cinematic standpoint, as a building tension standpoint, this works. But I don't necessarily know whether it's, con- whether it's consistent with the character that they built up to in this um, previously. Yeah. Um so I, I was rushing because I wanted to get your take on this because Grey Worm pulls the most Levi move of all time here. So yes, he Danny, does. Danny is back in the map. <laughs> That's room. a good comparison. <laughs> Grey Worm. And uh, she's holding a neck chain that Masende brought with her from Mesa. It's very poetic that Masende would keep her neck chain, right? Yeah. Uh, Danny gives it to Grey Worm. Grey Worm looks at it, scowls, and tosses it into the fire. What do you make of this? Is this, I... is this, is, is, is this Grey Worm is just lost? Or is this just practical? Like, a lot of, you know, what am I going to do with this? Like, I, I, I keep her in my heart anyway. Like, I don't, this is not going to be any benefit to me. I interpret it as being that Grey Worm is lost. I think that's what they want us to get out of this. That yep. there is no feeling of, you know, emotional resonance anymore. There is no feeling of wanting to have, wanting to grieve, to have this bonding moment over their shared grief. There is only burning, fiery anger. There is a desire to damage things, to hurt things. And that's how it's expressing that this little token that gives us a sense to, you know, do a bit of an Irish wake or at least a joint cry is not what I need or want right now. Fire is where it goes and fire is where I'm at. Yep. Yep. Um, Dan, John shows up and Danny grants Grey Worm leave. I thought it was interesting. She uh, grants him leave in Valerian. Um, but the 
the um, translation that was on the screen actually says Torconudo, which is Grey Worm. They didn't actually translate Torconudo to Grey Worm. I don't know why they did that. That was weird. I, 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 both, both Bridget and I turned to each other and said, what? What, what did we just hear? What is the, why, why did they do that? <laughs> yeah, very strange. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this right now, Spencer. I am calling it. I am staking my podcast reputation, which is, you know, obviously unbesmirched, on a 1v1 John V. Grey Worm in the next episode. And I will sell you front row tickets if you'd like. But I'm telling you right now, that's going down. I mean, Danny, at the end of this episode, has two protectors left. I'm wondering if either survive, and I'm wondering which one, whose death is going to hurt me more. Uh, but I think I got an obvious choice. I'm telling you, Grey Worm and John, it is happening, and we get more foreshadowing of it later in the episode, by the way. We do. We, we get a look from Grey Worm to John that could curdle milk. Yeah, John's not... John's shooting him some daggers, too. But anyway, we'll get yeah. to it. He said, um, she says, what did I say would happen if you told your sister? Mm-hmm. John dismisses it and again i think this is john saying you asked an unreasonable thing i didn't agree to it sorry mm -hmm. like it's not you you're not going to be able to convince john of something by just screaming and yelling i'm the queen um john says he doesn't want it and that's what he told varys and danny again you gotta question you gotta question the management style here right uh she she says she betrayed your trust she killed varys as much as i did this is a victory for her now she knows what happens when people hear the truth about you Far more people love you in Westeros than love me. I don't have love here. I only have fear. She makes... Danny is very, very good, and Cersei is really good at this too, of saying something where she is 100% right and 100% wrong in the same fucking sentence. Yeah. <laughs> this is trying a, to conflate the two. She's crazy to say that, she, that Sansa killed Varys as much as, as she did. But she is right that when Sansa hears this, Sansa is going to feel some level of validation about her backing of Jon's claim because it's true that as soon yeah. as Varys heard it, he flipped on a dime for Jon. Yeah, I mean, she's correct perfectly that this is what Sansa wanted, that this is what Sansa got, that this was Sansa's objective, and anyone could see this coming the moment you told Sansa, you idiot. She's also using classic language of an abuser to say, you know, why do you make me hurt you kind of justifications for her actions that I literally er ordered a man burned alive. But a woman who pushed the domino several steps back is entirely responsible for it. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, she is, she is, I mean, at this point, if you're team Danny and God bless you, if you're still team Danny uh, at the end of this episode. Um, but you still have to say, well, she's really cracking up. People have, sort of crazy. people have literally named their children after this woman. They're kind of invested. I have got zero sympathy for somebody who named their child Daenerys or Khaleesi. <laughs> well, zero, zero. Especially well, with the books not written. Uh, was, the, the book's not written and the show not done. Admittedly, it was a risk. It was a reasonable enough risk one would assume of the main character on the show that's being framed in a certain light but it's been proven false after this episode um so uh then john responds i love you you will always be my queen real friend zoning i mean he is oh, friend zoning yeah. her hard here oh yeah um you know and that's interesting i, I know the friend zoning i've seen the move uh, I've been victim of it. I have uh, done it myself. And he is saying, I love you. But then he wants to clarify, I love you as my queen, not as you know well, something well, else. She, she tries to make one last move here. She tries, Does she or is she calling his bluff? I saw some desperation still in her of where in some ways from her practically, this is the last laugh, laugh, laugh line, lifeline that she has built in her life. That she's 
grasping at him like a drowning woman to try to find some degree of connection to what she originally came here for, originally believed in, and the form of love. That in her mind, in her mental state, that unless someone can love her, she has no love for anyone or anything. And she reaches out to John, she tries to get it with him again, physically and emotionally, and he rebuffs her on both. And she pulls back and we get one of the most dangerous lines out of Danny in all history. All right, then. Let it be fear. Which I'll nominate that for best line of the episode just because of how damn intimidating it is. I think um, this is the moment she officially snaps. I think this is when there's there's no going back for Danny. There's snapping and then there's snapping. And we clearly see that she has picked a different path in life here. Whether that necessarily leads to her incinerating quite possibly hundreds of thousands of innocents is a matter to be debated. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is like when you're, you know, you're like at a party and the party's going great. And the person who throws the party is really wanting to hook up with one of your friends. And your friend's like, man, I'm not, I'm not really digging it. But you're like, dude, I don't know. Like, there's a fucking sushi bar here and there's <laughs> bottle service. And I think we need to just let this ride. You need to just do this. Like, and then the guy's like, no. And then he does it. And then the girl gets all emotional and shuts the party down. That's what kind of happened here. Like, you can't, in retrospect, not point the finger at John a little bit and be like, dude, you couldn't have hooked up with her one more fucking time. I mean, not just to save the million people of King's Landing, but also to save me $15 because we bet on this at the last pod that they would hook up one more time. And I think I've lost that money. This has been the most interesting little story analogy you've ever done right there. I'm all over the map. I'm all over the map. (laughs) We're basically just saying, John, if you had only pimped yourself out Think what could have been prevented. This was foreseeable, John. Well, not necessarily foreseeable, but I mean... No, it wasn't. I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Well, but no, I, I know you are, but I'm actually going to push back on that a little bit because I do think that he he could have seen that she needs something. Like, she, yes. it, 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 she's about to go into King's Landing and she is just cracking. Like, dude, give her a night or two. Like, give her a night or two of feeling good before she goes into King's Landing. I mean, man, maybe things would have gone a little differently. But any, I don't put it all on John, but I put 12% on John. Uh, no. <laughs> Not 12%. The, the, the crown sits where the crown sits. The responsibility lies with it. I'm All not, right. I, there's there's a not providing emotional support to someone that needs it. And then there's the, you know, whole, there's not proximate cause between I didn't hold your hand when you needed to and you ki- you committed mass murder. Don't, you're not proving that one in court. I'm not trying to, but I am going to say this. Um, I think you're being a little inconsistent here because you, you said that Danny gave him a queenly demand to not tell Sansa. Sure. I mean, can't she give him a queenly demand? Just like fucking man up and have sex with her? Have sex with your aunt, John. Come on. What kind of she coward could. are you? She, she certainly could, but it wouldn't be what she wants and needs right now. It's not in any way about the physical. She wants the kind of emotional connection that she was establishing. She wants anyone to love her still. I'm going to tell and you this. No I, one can I, give her that. I saw the the the, um, the charisma and the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the excitement and the emotion coming from both of these actors. He, she was never going to get emotional support from John. I mean, these two fucking potatoes <laughs> can barely look at each other. Yeah, Kit Harrington's able to do emotion, emotional scenes with certain other actors and actresses and in certain settings. As you've described, these two well-dressed potatoes just do not have a certain degree of resonance between them. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I think I beat that to death. We're in the throne room in Dragonstone, and Tyrion is begging Danny not to hurt the people of King's Landing. This is forefront on Tyrion's mind this entire episode, and shout out to him for it, because somebody needs to be thinking about the people. Uh, Tyrion says they are hostages to Cersei in King's Landing, and Danny says they are, and that them being held hostage is her fault. Tyrion tries to reframe the conversation, and Danny says, look, Cersei is using our mercy against us. Cersei thinks that weakness is our mercy, but she's wrong. Mercy is our strength. Quote, our mercy toward future generations who will never again be held by a tyrant. Even Grey Worm kind of looks down in a way on that one. This was like, ah, oh, that's a tortured <sighs> bit of logic here. <sighs> Oof, if, man. man. There's a certain degree of the ends justify the means, but that one just doesn't even sound good when you're uh, out loud. No, she sounds a little nuts there. Uh, Danny instructs Grey Worm to be ready, to ready the Unsullied. And Tyrion, then in a sort of last sort of, and Peter Dinklage really acts this well. Yeah. He seems like he's desperate and he's just like, look, you know, if they ring the bells, that means that they surrender. If they ring the bells, call it off. Have we ever been told that before, by the way? Previously, we've even had one of the characters, Davos, say literally out loud, I've never ne never known the bells to indicate surrender. We previously heard the bells announce like the death of a the death of a leader. We've seen bells, you know, call people to the walls. Have we ever heard the bells being a surrender thing before? Because they're really big on it this episode. Okay, so I don't know for sure. You hit me with that one cold, but I would guess. Sorry, that... something I was thinking about. Because I remember yeah. that I remember that line from Davos when they're sailing into Blackwater Bay. If they hear the bells ringing, and it's like, oh, they're they're not they're not, they're, they're greeting they're welcoming us in. It's like, no, bells have never meant surrender. Uh, I have. A vague recollection of when Tywin died, it was either Sansa or it was Tyrion and Varys talking about the bells ringing and they say like, all right, you know, like the bells ring for these situations. That, that was when uh, um, when Varys and Tyrion before the Battle of Blackwater talking where Varys says, I've always hated the bells. They announced, you know, the, the, the death of a king, an approaching enemy army, a wedding, um, it, 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 several things along those lines. But I... I it's it's entirely incidental. The show just wants to set up set up the bells as a good visual and uh, auditory cue. But I find it weird that everyone's just on the same page. The bells work when they've just never said that before. Yeah. But well, incidental. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. We have to go back uh, and check it. But I think they mentioned it then. But I don't know for sure. Um, then Danny nods. So straight straight lied. Just mm -hmm. hundred percent lied to Terry yeah. in there. D and, does does Danny in this moment know what she's going to do? I think so. Really? Yeah, because I mean, she's not. She's. She, I mean, she is not responding to Tyrion's call for mercy for the people. She's completely dismissing that altogether. And she, I think, she just nods just to fucking lie to get the conversation to move fast. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah, just she's tired away. of talking to him. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Not gonna murder. <laughs> Tells Grey Worm to wait for her outside the city. Quote: "You'll know when it's time." Yeah, you will. He does. Tyrion sort of slinks off. Not really. He at this point he just doesn't he's know done. what he's. He doesn't know what. The, well, he just doesn't know how to deal with Danny at all. He didn't even know when to walk away from her. Danny stops him. This is Jamie was stopped trying to get past their lines. Quote: Seems like she hasn't abandoned your sister after all. The next time you fail me will be the last time you fail me. Danny seems really angry in this scene, but shout out to Amelia Clark. Her scowl fades as Tyrion leaves, and she just seems sad. Yeah, she's really coming across right now as a kind of a broken person. That she's 
like we talked about with Cersei in the Tower, she's feeling very much, uh, very much alone in a world that she wanted, but is everything, a world that she wanted, but is not at all what she expected and hoped for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then we cut to King's Landing and people are pouring into the gates. Um, I think they're trying to get into King's Landing and then trying to get into the Red Keep, which to me sounds fucking crazy. That's the last place I want to be. Hey, buddy. Hey, doggy. Yeah, he has to make an appearance at some point or another. It's required. You know, he, he is our representative for ghosts that John, that, that John so casually cast aside. Oh, man, burn. So I don't I don't know how much the people actually know. But if they know that Danny has a dragon, I don't want to be within four miles of Cersei. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be within four miles of Cersei. I wouldn't want to be four miles of a city you know is about to be attacked and besieged. Makes I mean, no sense. It also makes very... It, make, it can make sense from only one perspective as to why Cersei's even letting people in at this point. Because as we see, various people who are coming to kill her just very easily get in with the crowd. Um, it is consistently dangerous to let that number of people in before you think about to be attacked. Because A, you're bringing in more mouse to feed. B, you're possibly bringing in poss- people that are loyal to the army that's about to attack you. And C, you're bringing in more people that can destabilize the situation in what's already going to be a fraught, a fraught uh, effort to defend the city. The only reason I think she's doing this is to bring in, again, more hostages. That, that's the best way I can try to justify Cersei's action in letting in what appear to be thousands more people. Yeah, I think she is. <clears throat> I think she is setting it up. I mean, she explained it that way. She's like, you know, if Danny's going to come in here, you know, and kill me, she's going to kill these people, too, not knowing that, like, whoop, called you bluff. She's got a lot, she's got a lot already. You're getting excessive at this point. But I also think that like, okay, this is a tactical mistake that Cersei's making. Like this is consistent yeah, with is. her character. She does this all the time. She's just she thinks she's got the right answer. She plows ahead. She doesn't ask for anybody else's opinion. And she, this is dumb. She's done well two seasons with it, but this one seems like a misstep. This seems this seems like target fixation that she has a plan and she's sticking to it and keeping with it. In a certain degree of probably desperation that this really is her only lifeline here. John and Tyrion arrive at the campsite for the Northern Army outside of King's Landing, and Davos is waiting for them. Davos explains that the rear guard should be there by daybreak. Tyrion, look, Tyrion looking real sheepish here, 10 out of 10 sheepish, says Danny wants to attack now. And John says, daybreak at the earliest. Now, is this the first time that we have seen him, two other characters, buck Danny's order? Yeah, it is. Very directly, and this was interesting, that both of them just go, yep, that's the best we're doing. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you, at this point, I mean, this is this is tough, because when you have a manager or you have a, a leader of an organization where people under are managing around you and subverting your direct orders mm-hmm. because they're just nuts or not in the best interest of even you, I mean, I, when could this ever happen? I mean, think about it, like, in government, would, has this ever happened, like, have we ever had like a president? Anyway, no. Um, back to the story. Yeah, as we've recently apparently proven, it is not a crime. You are not committing a crime so long as those under your authority don't carry it out, even when they've received a direct order for you to do so. So that's kind of what's going on here. Is they're subverting her, and when you've done that, you've really you've lost your people. So I think this yeah. is a really tough spot here for Danny. I like that they show John do this because it it shows the hurt. And man, you talk about having like a brittle. Uh, leadership, right? Of being a brittle ruler. I mean, it's, it's starting to get more brittle by the day for Danny. Oh, yeah. And I think we see that very much play out in terms of how the battle goes in King's Landing itself, where it's not only brittle under Danny, but even though there is very little command structure left in Danny's force, it is just kind of ad hoc and there. It's Grey Worm and John. It's Grey Worm and 
and the Great Worm and John were both front at the at front of the army battlefield fighters. There's no you know Tywin. There is no Stannis. There is nope. no even officer corps. This is a this is more of a horde than it is an army, and we see that play out in the most horrific fashion before this day's done. Very good point. Yeah, yeah, you you set that up perfectly because you're right. They're 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 very undisciplined. Um, Tyrion they're, asks, "Go ahead." They're undisciplined and angry, and they're angry specifically at those that are inside the walls. They're angry at what the Lannister cause represents and has done to them. This is a force that you are asking for carnage if it just gets inside the walls without some degree of organization to keep them in check. Because from their perspective, those that are behind those walls, the, at least the leadership of them, are responsible for everything that has gone wrong to me. They And they also left us to die against the army of the dead. That's a dangerous mindset to go into an army that is this ill-disciplined and this disorganized. Yeah, so let's 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 table that and we'll yeah. discuss why that all plays out that way when we get there. Da, Tyrion asks Davos for a favor. Says Davos, the most famous smuggler alive, and Davos says, "I'm not going to like this favor." Yeah, <laughs> no, you're not. Um, and so, cut to the Hound and Arya. Oh my God, Spencer Hound and Arya, I'm taking my victory lap. Woo! That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hound and Arya called it beginning of the season. You get a tender moment. We do get a tender moment. It's coming later we, in the episode. We get a few. Very. I my favorite line in the episode is our Hound Arya moment. It really is. At least favorite series of lines. Yep. A guard comes up to them. Which, why, why are you even doing this? Yeah. That's what they're doing. Arya says she's going to kill Cersei. She's very blunt about this. Yeah. Uh, the Hound reasons with the guard. Which shout out to the Hound. His reasoning is pretty good. Hey, look. If Cer- if Arya goes and kills Cersei, you may know. War's over. Her. Yeah, we're good. Everybody can just take it easy tomorrow. That was a very reasonable stance that we as viewers all agreed with. Though apparently you've now come to the conclusion that that would not have stopped the war even if Cersei died that night. Um, and then we get to Tyrion. He comes to the Unsullied that are presumably holding Jaime. Mm-hmm. Um, yet more trials and tribulations of learning a new language with Tyrion Lannister. He mm-hmm. attempts to speak Valerian. Do you know what he says? Uh, something... Something wrong. I don't remember the exact words, but it's, it's fucking hilarious. Was there I nominate cheese? This, I nominate this for line of the episode. Please tell me. I drink to eat the skull keepers. You know, I, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I, I can get some poetic understanding behind that. It resonates through, I feel. Tyrion speaks Valerian like I speak French. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, he tries. The, he, he's getting there by the end. He is getting there by the end. The unsullied but it's just sort of, yeah, the unsullied sort of say, "Well, we speak the common tongue." Um, We've been here like a year, man. Come on. Tyrion has to be alone with the prisoner. They say they have orders to guard the Tyrion to guard the prisoner. Shout out to Tyrion here. He he logics these assholes right out of their watch, and he says, "Well, yeah. who gave the order? Was it the queen? No. Well, then I outrank whoever gave you that order because I'm hand of the queen." And he is mm-hmm. spot on right about that. And he gets in, and... Uh, well, hold on. One second. No. Who do you think actually gave the order? Because I'm thinking Grey Worm. Grey Worm, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Absolutely Grey Worm. Um, yeah, I mean, Grey Worm's basically the only person that's actually listening to Danny's instructions anymore. She's the closest thing that she has to an officer under her command. I yep. mean, does she have anyone else at this point? I, I, I don't know. These magical Dothraki that just keep fucking showing up. We are going to talk about the magical Dothraki here in a second. So that presumably there's someone who's who's dealing with them. Um, Tyrion steps into the tent. He asks how they found him. And <laughs> Jamie lifts up the golden hand. Tyrion asking what we all want to ask. Jamie, did you consider taking it off? Jamie, sort of a heartbreaking line here. Says Cersei once called me the stupidest Lannister, which I yeah. think he is. Yeah, but it's again, this is the woman you're going back to right now? Because that's a really hurtful line to say about anybody. 
Tyrion asks if he's going back to die. Well, he doesn't ask. He like, says it in a questioning way. Like, yeah. you're going back to die with her. And Jamie suggests Cersei may not die, but Tyrion's having none of it. Yeah. Um, absolutely but, blindingly certain in a way that I'm still not at this phase. I'm not either. Uh, I don't. I don't understand why he's so confident, but he is abs- he's not hearing it. And he's saying, no, that the city is going to fall. Um, unless, of course, Jamie can convince her otherwise. And Jamie says he doesn't have a real... Shout out to Jamie on this this past performance reference here. He's like, look, I don't have a real strong record of convincing Cersei of anything. Yeah. Um, Tyrion says, well, you got to try. Um, if not for Cersei, if not for yourself, for the million people in the city. And that doesn't... That lands on deaf ears because Jamie yeah. says he never really liked him anyway. If you want a worst line of the episode for me, right there. Right there. Yeah, right not, there. Not going to give a shit. That is that line alone is give, is pulling back like four seasons of character development. I mean, this is the guy who literally abandoned everything he ever fought for in his life to kill the Mad King to protect these people. Who has warped his own psychology in defiance of anyone questioning his act because of how much that meant to him to do it. That it, it, this feels like they've, they've so thoroughly thrown out his character development with Brienne that that scene in the bath has just gone out with the bathwater with their relationship because this is an Ooh. active defiance of that line. Look at you, man. I, I'm, I'm pissed at that line because I'm that pissed at what they do with the, Jamie Jamie's character development here. Scene in the bath went out with the bathwater. Look out, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Spencer. Um, there we go. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, Jamie jokes that he's uh, he didn't like the citizens of king's landing Tyrion says jamie uh and cersei both care about the unborn child he really tries to reframe this as like look you got a kid on the way okay which i'm not sure she has a kid on the way because god knows how much time has passed since she first told jamie that she was pregnant she's still not showing mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they really didn't even try in terms of setting up um lynn headley as pregnant i mean i think we come to the conclusion by the end, the end of this episode that she is because she seems shaken up about it but we didn't ever get much of the way of physical evidence he could have just given her a baby bump. Uh, missed opportunity yeah. there. Jamie says the child is why Cersei won't give an inch. I don't really understand that. Uh, then Jamie and Tyrion get into a back and forth on if the city is going to fall. Tyrion is just so convinced here, and he's—I mean, he's right because it bears out that it, like the city falls within like like five minutes. Um, but I just didn't know where that, you know, where that was coming from, where that confidence was coming from. Yeah, it it, it it rang hollow to me, particularly with this reference of "I defended this city before I know." No, that's uh, that's the dumb line. That was a, that was a dumb line because it, it's utterly irrelevant to how the city falls. But now I I do think that's a line Tyrion might say, but he's just line. wrong. Yeah, it is. I think it's in some ways in keeping that he would say that line just almost out of pride, but it has no relevance to how this actually plays out. Right. Um, I have a theory here. Mm. I don't think that Tyrion is confident that the city is going to fall for any tactical reason. I think when he was standing there in the throne room of Dragonstone, he looked into Danny's eyes and mm-hmm. he thought, uh oh. <laughs> I think it's purely just on the crazy eyes that Danny's rocking. I think that I'm I'm willing to believe that even Tyrion right now thinks he's lying to Jamie. That he's just that desperate that Sure, the city may fall tomorrow, but a angry, vengeful army is going to be cu- going through the streets full of civilians, and that's just going to be carnage waiting to happen, even if we win. That he's just trying to convince Jamie of this, even if he, even if he's not so certain himself, because he needs Jamie to do this. Yeah. Well, then Tyrion drops his big old plan for Jamie. Um, escape now, get Cersei, go down the stairs outside the Red Keep to a beach where a boat will be waiting for them. We actually see that boat later on, which is pretty cool. It- Question about the boat. Is he literally proposing that they 
row this boat across the narrow sea because that's seemingly what he's suggesting. I they I, I have to think that's a skiff to an actual proper boat. I hope so because and, that's that, literally what he said was there's a boat you could take that to Pentos. Yeah, because we, we see that we, uh, we see that boat. But we see that it's consistent, right? When you say a boat, I mean, you, you get on the skiff, you go to your boat. Like sure. that, We've seen that so many times in the show. Yeah, I, I'm willing to buy that. It's not what he says, but I'm willing and hoping to buy that. So anyway, yeah, he says, the winds are kind, you can get to Pentos and start a new life. Jamie doesn't hate this idea. You can see a little twinkle yeah. in his eye. Um, Tyrion tells Jamie to open the gates, before you leave, open the gates and have the bells rung before leaving. That way, Danny and her army know that you've surrendered. Jamie indicates um, that Danny will kill Cersei for this. Um, we'll, we'll kill him for this and Cersei too. Oh no, no, sorry, sorry. Jamie indicates that Danny will kill Tyrion for this. You're right. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, I'm trying to get to this quote because I thought it was really good. Um, if Daenerys can make it to the throne without wading through a river of blood, maybe she'll show mercy to the person who made that possible. Mm-hmm. Tens of thousands of innocent lives. One not particularly innocent dwarf. Seems like a fair trade. And ever since Danny uttered this line, Tyrion has been on a mission to prove her wrong. Tyrion is heroic. Yeah. This when is when a, Danny said you're not a hero, that she's been she couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, this is a heroic moment. I'm annoyed at some ways with Tyrion that he's not willing to voice voice more threats to Danny over the course of this episode. But this act, at least, is an act of direct defiance of her that he knows will almost certainly get him killed. Um, and the line that he says to Jamie here at the end, it breaks my heart. Um, after he says that, which is again a powerful line, that I don't make the best line of the episode. There's a follow up line to it, which is just heart wrenching. If it weren't for you, I never would have survived my childhood. And Jamie immediately responds, you would have. And you just look at Tyrion and he's falling apart as he's just absolutely convinced. You were the only one who didn't treat me like a monster. You were all I had. And as much as I don't like a lot of the character exits in the course of this, in the course of this uh, episode, this is a powerful moment between two brothers that is earned and I like. Completely agree. That's a... I- Look, man, I wasn't crying. I don't know about you, but I wasn't crying. No, I, I, I eat onions regularly, and that explains all things. Definitely not crying. Tyrion walks out. Heck of a goodbye for these two. Anything else on that before we cut to the next morning and the siege? Yeah, I think I think when we leave this moment, we immediately cut to what is the next 40 minutes of this episode. Uh, I feel like we're, we're leaving one phase and going on to a very different one from here on out. Yeah, and we we joked over text messages that we could actually do this recap in about three sentences if we wanted to. Um, <laughs> we really can. It's, it is just carnage embodied. Um, but anyway, it's now the next morning. The Iron Fleet is in Blackwater Bay. Scorpions are on most of the ships that we can tell. Shout out to Euron. He's walking around with a flask. So he's just up drinking at like 830 in the morning. He's pre-gaming. You know, we're, we're, about, to, we're about to have a full-on party. You got to get ready for it. Inside King's Landing, the Lannister army is manning the walls. They're getting ready. The citizens seem panicked. The women and children are being urged to go inside. It looks like the Lannister, the Lannister army is actually helping with this, though, which I find interesting. Which is consistent. I think they've done a good job previously of showing that is whatever else you want to assign to the leaders of the Lannister forces, the Lannisters themselves are professional soldiers, and they behave with dignity and do what they can to protect those who are under their sworn obligation. And I, I like that they... Particularly with how this episode plays out, I like the effort they make to humanize them once again. That these are just guys doing their job. They're tasked with protecting the city, and the people are part of that city. 
Yeah, and then the Arya, Arya and the Hound, um, or Arya and Sandor are walking into King's Landing. Sandor gamely covering his head here. Very smart. <clears throat> yeah, he shows a lot more active willingness to at least try to hide himself than Jamie, who we see in a later scene, is just still walking around with the gold hand once again. Yeah. Cersei once called me the stupidest Lannister. <laughs> Jamie also arrives at King's Landing just as the Golden Company is marching outside the gates. Takes the glove off the Golden Hand. Takes the glove off the Golden Hand. Admittedly, he may be trying to be noticed because he assumes he that is, the Golden yeah. Hand will get him to Cersei rather than immediately executed for, you know, betraying her. But no, yeah, it, it it's is. It's a bet. No, well, it, that's clearly what he's doing because later when he's trying to get... He's you know, waving like, it around. He's waving yeah. it for the soldiers. I, yeah, so that's clearly I, what he's doing. I think I clearly what he's doing, I just think that is really damn risky. Because, again, they did not leave on the best turns, and she just sent someone to kill you. Don't yeah. assume that they're going to see the golden hand and go, oh, he gets a, he gets a VIP pass. Okay, well, so the, what you're saying is that potentially one of the soldiers could kill him before he gets to Cersei? Sure. Okay, I don't, I don't think Standing Cersei would orders. have those orders. I don't think Cersei would have those orders. I think she would want him pulled in. I think that's a fair bet by Jamie. Jamie also... Um, Actually, he passes through the Golden Company. Um, I got to tell you, Spencer, not really impressed with the Golden Company. In terms of their visuals or in terms of their performance before this battle's done? Going to be a little column A, a little bit of column B. Seems like a bunch of old men in weak-ass armor to me. It, this is a real waste of what is a powerful, relevant force from the books, of where they seem like a disorganized band. With, nice shield. I love the shield. shield the, the emblems are nice, but this is not the crap crack professional troop that we've been described before even on the show they 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 look very much as like a foreign disorganized mass that is here to just show the situation is dangerous yeah and it's like they have breastplates but they don't have proper armor not even like the the mounted like yeah golden company sucks um giving them a bad review on yelp (laughs) you know it may not be too relevant to them because over the course of this episode it doesn't look like many of them survive one star review. Bought Golden Company to help me win battle. Lost in the first twenty seconds. <laughs> would prefer. Would recommend more fire resistant force in future. <laughs> Harry Strickland rides out in front. Uh, the Northern Army and the Unsullied and a few Dothraki. We'll let you rant on that here in a minute. Are, <laughs> are opposite them. Davos, Tyrion, and John look to be in command. Tyrion tells John to call off the army if the bells ring. Which I thought was interesting here. John doesn't give a response. He doesn't say, yes, I will do that. John is John throughout these scenes just seems oddly resigned to what's about to happen. That he's not objecting, he's not voicing opinion, he just feels like he's obliged to carry it out, which is real damn passive from a guy who's been willing to, you know, kill friggin' kings in the past to do what he felt was right. I'm telling you, hungover Kit Harrington. That's what <laughs> yeah. we're getting. He had, a, he had a rough night. You know, you're back in King's Landing. You got a party when you're there. There was another rap party last night, you know, and he's just, he's just, he's leaving a lot on the table here. I'm not, I'm not giving the Emmy vote to uh, Kit Harrington. Um, for this Which is season. a shame. We've, we, we have seen what this man is capable of, but throughout this episode, he is really going through the motions. Yeah. Um, Cersei is at the top of the Red Keep looking down and looking smug. Too much confidence. Classic case of it, Spencer. Uh, people are still pouring into the Red Keep. Arya and the Hound muscle their self in before the gates close. Jamie is caught outside. Um, as is a mother and daughter that just barely miss getting in. We'll see them again later. 
Mm-hmm. The crowd surges forward just as the mom pulls the daughter out of the way of the wall. And Jamie is trying to get the attention of the Lannister soldiers. This is what we were talking about earlier by waving okay. his golden hand, saying, soldier, soldier. Hey, look, golden hand. I'm Jamie Lannister. It's not working. They can't see him. So he takes off in a different direction. Yeah. Which we eventually find is that he's apparently going the same way that Arya went through the crypts, which I guess he became aware of during all of his time in King's Landing. Or maybe when he was um, he was meeting Tyrion, remember, in Season 7? Very true. It also, again, Tyrion reminded him here of where he's going where the boat is, assuming there's some connection from there into the, into the castle. Cut back to Cersei, um, and uh, she's a little nervous, I guess. I mean, she's kind of all over the place, and Lena Headley acts this exactly how I would think that this character would be. I mean, she's, she's some level of confident, nervous, and then later horrified. I mean, she's literally, I mean, from, from an actor's standpoint, she's been paid about a million dollars an episode to stand in a window and look out over the city. And they haven't given her much, but she's done very well with that. Yeah, I think the market research checks out there. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow that. I mean, she's, she's done a great job. Um, now the various armies, Cersei and the Iron Fleet, are just waiting. Yeah. Euron hears something. He looks up at the sky, and he looks up directly, and we catch a glimpse of Drogon. I'm not sure if he sees him, and Drogon is dropping straight down out on of top sun. of the Iron Fleet. Shout out to Aegon at Hall. I called for this in our last review pod. Yeah. The, and the, that's the, exactly what she does. This is proper dragon tactics in a way we've not seen before. Clearly, someone finally provided Danny a guide to how you how to how to use a dragon, uh, <laughs> how to train your dragon. I how to train? Dragon. That's funny. Um, but you know, this is using proper tactics from Aegon. This is using proper tactics from the Dance of Dragons in terms of when they fought off the foreign fleet that was attacking on the shores. This is proper how you would do it in this situation. My only complaint. Um, is that they may have gone too far in the opposite direction from what they've been giving us about dragons for the last season or two. And that over the course of this episode, we see an uber power of Drogon that we have never had an opportunity to see previously. Yeah, I mean, I took this, I actually find this to be somewhat consistent. I think this was Danny finally letting loose. I mean, every other time she's been in a battle with Drogon, or she's used Drogon in any way, uh, and, and let's table the army of the dead because it's a whole different thing. Yeah, she has been reserved. She's not been unleashing his full power, and this uh, is her really unleashing his full, full power. I think the Field of Fire 2.0 was pretty close in term when she was incinerating the Lannister army that were transporting the golden grain. No, I disagree because I mean the, the King Landing was right there. I mean, she was limiting it to, I'm going to destroy this army, I'm going to kill this thing. Okay. Not, okay. I'm, go- I'm going to show you, I can win this war right now. So th- this was not her going full make uh, back back then. Now she's just, un- there, there, she is utterly unbound. She is doing as she f- feels necessary in the moment without any degree of constraint or oversight. She's always limited it, right? There's always been like, here's the objective, like go mm-hmm. do this. And now she's just like, I'm going to fucking kill everything. And we see the full power of it. I do think that there is some, I'm going to defend the battle sequences here a lot because I think they, they really make a lot of sense. Like I do think once you do that first pass across the iron fleet, mm-hmm. it gets a little harder to quickly, you know, reload and fire that bolt, you know, and I really caution, yeah. you know, like, I mean, people are going to panic. Indeed, though the perfect accuracy we saw at play when Euron was firing at moving targets while on a ship previously, um, at you know like two thousand or even a half mile away or whatever else, is not at play here. Now, if you want to write that off, that she's finally wielding the dragon correctly, she's finally using intelligent tactics. The dragon's always been better at dodging. Fine, 
But it seems like a certain degree of plot armor, too, that this many things are getting thrown at the air editor, given how accurate and powerful they've seen in the past, and they're all just missing. See, I, th- I, think, I feel like you have to argue one or the other. You have to say that either that other scene was problematic, or you accept that other scene and this scene is problematic. So when I we did the- that pod, I said that's a completely ridiculous thing that occurred, that mm-hmm. Rhaegal got three straight bolts from Euron. That's stupid. Yeah. This, however, does make sense to me. And I'm with you there. Um, I just it, it, as as a result of that prior misstep, it comes across as unnecessarily inconsistent. Well, it, yeah, it's inconsistent, but I'm I'm saying I like this scene. I don't sure. like that uh, other one. Yeah, um, fine with that. Uh, this goes pretty damn quick. I mean, uh, yeah. he burns the she iron just fleet, lances through them. Um, and to your point, Drogon is damn good at avoiding bolts. Let's get him that uh, that Boy Scout patch for avoiding bolts because Drogon is damn good at it. You've been foreshadowing and talking about that every time they've been showing it previously. And it is something that has been documented that after he got that one from Bronn, he has been hyper aware of it in the past. Yeah. he. I mean, he's watching it and he do, he dodges, you know, in dealing with the Iron Fleet, he dodges a few of them. Um, and then he has this really cool trick that he does later. But he should have taught his little green brother how to how to dodge the bolts. Um, Danny <laughs> finally hits Euron's ship and he jumps overboard. I did not take this as Euron was dead there. A lot of the fandom did. I think he should have been. I think he realistically would have been. I think it would have saved us some screen time to do other things. But I did. Full, I, and the fact that he wasn't incinerated, I'm like, ah, they're probably bringing him back in some way. So I in no way thought he was dead, but probably from a plotting and a timing standpoint, he just should have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody's a big fan of your on screen time. Um, Drogon finishes off the Iron Fleet and flies toward King's Landing, and he does this neat little thing. So, a couple things I really like in this scene. One mm-hmm. is that Drogon is dipping his toe in the water as he goes. Mm-hmm. He's just having a grand old time. He's just having fun. That's what you do when you're having fun. He's just yeah. dipping his toe in as he flies. Danny flies him low until the moment that the bolts from the scorpions up on the uh, battlements go off, and then she jerks him up higher. Smart yeah. move there. She's using she's using elevation well for a change. She's actually she is flying a dragon the way you would if you actually wanted to use them effectively in battle, and it, it is a marked improvement over her prior efforts. Agreed. Drogon gets to the walls of King's Landing and starts laying waste to all the scorpions on the other side of King's Landing. Uh, so this is the this is the Blackwater Bay side where the Mudgate is, where we mm-hmm. saw Stannis attack in season two. There's another side to that, which is. Apparently on a desert. I don't understand that. This can't be the Mudgate. The Mudgate was up with, was against Blackwater Bay. I agree. Well, well no, they're... that's what I'm saying. That that where Danny is attacking is near the Mudgate because that's on the oh, side yeah. of Blackwater yeah, yeah, yeah. Bay. This where we're going to is completely on the other side. And what I find weird is that it's still supposed to be winter, and it looks like the desert. Yeah, I don't know where what side this is. Some side facing Dorne, I suppose. Fucking weird, man. But anyway, um, we get there, and uh, the armies are faced off. And they hear something in the background. I guess this is the moment that Danny um, prepped Grey Worm for, because Grey Worm steps forward. Mm-hmm. Harry Strickland and the boys look confused. Um, and and by the way, like when when Cersei sourced this, right? When she sent out that RFP uh, mm-hmm. for for services for sellsword services, did she not include um, in potential risk dragons? Because they seem completely flummoxed by this. Did, is this the first they've heard of the dragons? I don't know. It's it, it is a weird thing of where they just utterly seem surprised and cut off guard. That, oh shit! Fire! It's like click as she said when the RFP went out. Was that not line page one line one of things you need to be prepared for and things I'm looking for is you know anti dragon efforts and forces. Even the title of the the RFP has to be like services sought to fight Dragon Queen. Like there you go, yeah. Dragon Queen. 
Anyway, they look completely shocked and pour a little out, but not too much. Don't waste your drink for the Golden Company. You died faster than the Dothraki, who apparently still didn't die. Yeah. Question, by the way, of uh, the forward force of Dragonfire. We've yeah. seen before that Dragonfire will burn shit. We've seen before that it will even, you know, burn up and kind of break apart a wagon. We've seen castles that have been melted by Dragonfire. This, on the other hand, is a directly explosive thing that I don't think we've seen before. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because the dragon's in motion. Maybe, but even then, I this thing is literally burning off like the top 20 feet of walls in terms of the explosive effect of this. As I said, this is uber Drogon in a way we have never seen dragons before. Some of that's tactics. Some of it seems like they kind of cranked up his power strength a bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, though. I am going to draw a line in the sand on how much I'm willing to analyze the show with just the the force at which dragon fire <laughs> Fine. hits a wall. Fine. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a line here. Again, if, if, if this kind of dragon fire had been used in Heron Hall, there wouldn't be a Heron Hall. It wouldn't just be a melted crag ruined the way it is. Uh, Grey Worm kills Harry Strickland, who, man, he really bitches out. I mean, yeah. that's a tough, tough, tough look for Harry Strickland. The Dothraki start riding through King's Landing, and, and you know, let's say you had. Uh, I'm gonna let. I'm gonna free you up on the Dothraki rant here in just a second, yeah. but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say there's only 50 Dothraki left. Um, that I still would put those 50 out in front to go through the the, the you know the oh, yeah. the city first. But anyway, Spencer, why does Danny still have a Dothraki army? The only way I can explain this is that all of them weren't at the battle at, at the Battle of Winterfell, which would make no sense that they weren't all there. Um, they all died. They all died. All the Unsullied died too, but those seemingly are still the majority of her forces. Uh, I don't get this at all. I mean, they could have done a Dornish cavalry. They could have done the Vale cavalry again, but all the people we see on horses of the course of this episode are Dothraki in a lot more than 50 of them, it looks like to me. Um, so It doesn't look like that many. I, I don't know, man. I've rewatched it a few times. I don't think you see that many in one scene very... Like, you don't see that many in one scene. I agree with you, though, that if she had any Dothraki left, they would absolutely be the first force you'd send in quickly because you've breached the walls. You just need someone to get in there while they're still out of position and, and you know, not surprised and not put together an organized defense. So for that kind of throw them into the breach and exploit the breach as fast as possible, light cavalry like them are perfect. So it would be great if she had Dothraki... Problem is, we saw them all die. We truly saw them all die, and we saw that those that survived were almost overwhelmingly come back on foot. They wouldn't even have horses. So I I don't know why they showed us that. It was so epic and incredible in the Battle of Winterfell, and then over the last two episodes, they've just kind of shrugged and went, eh, you know, more than half of them survived despite everything we showed you. Oh, no, I, I don't... Yeah, I mean, I think that with the Dothraki, there's clearly not that many of them. The Unsullied number, I, I don't... I mean, unless they were still, you know, on other parts of the wall during Episode 3, you know, stop, like holding... You know, maybe maybe the wall was breached, like, in one particular area. There were still uh, Unsullied on either side that were, that were still fighting. I, I don't know, but the number of Unsullied seems completely ridiculous to me. I can talk myself into 40 or 50 Dothraki that were just sort of stragglers. But a couple um, thousand unsullied the way they show. Yeah, crazy. Uh, Northmen come after, uh, and we see Drogon flying around destroying things. It seems to have just gotten, he seems to have just about gotten all the scorpions destroyed at this point. Um, and Drogon is also destroying what's left of the Golden Company and some of the Lannister forces. Yeah, I mean, it is, when we were plotting out how this battle would go, neither of us in any way predicted it would be like this, of where it is 
purposefully anticlimactic. It is purposefully a curb stomp in a way that Ooh, I, nice shout out. That's what I'm here for. Uh, it was, I thought this would be, I mean, they, even the series has been building up this up to, there is a parody of forces. This is going to be a hell of a battle. But they defy that. They it, it, That was all very much a red herring and goes very much into the different kind of story they want to tell with this episode. Yeah, and I'm going to say this about the episode. You, you can you can quibble about, you know, the number of soldiers on either side. You can quibble about uh, the force at which Dragonfire hits a wall. You can quibble about all kinds of stuff, but I will tell you this about the episode, and I will I will always defend it for this. I thought the show was done surprising me. Yeah. And it did a lot of things really surprised me. To your point, just how quickly, um, you know, Danny's force, how, what a route it is for Danny. That surprises me. And of course, there's one more heel turn coming later in the uh, in the episode mm-hmm. that surprised me. So this does surprise me. But um, getting back to the, the recap, we cut to Cersei. Now she's a little concerned. Yeah, <laughs> right. Things are going great. She's watching Drogon fly around, burning things. Cut back to outside King's Landing. Tyrion's walking around, taking in the destruction. I think he's he's a little quick to uh, start the the sort of <laughs> the walls haven't really fallen yet, but he's right there in the breach. Yeah, I mean his post mortem is a little bit premature. I think. Um, yeah, works out okay for him. Yeah, it's similar to I think they're doing this on purpose. Similar to a scene during the Field of Fire 2.0, very, very um, much when he walks around back. and sees the destruction. I mean, it, you know, I mean, we've set this up. Tyrion's very uncomfortable with the dragon and the power that the dragons have, and this this whole idea of even going in and burning your enemies. Um, mm-hmm. It's just it's just horrific. Well, as you say, the army breaches. Um, what is what what is there in terms of resistance is trying to hold on. In many cases, visibly trying to protect civilians. But it's just, they were relying on the walls holding. That was where the bulk of their forces were. The scorpions, the Quyburn had built, within a clear part of their defense. And as all of these are destroyed, I mean, Drogon was again eating his Wheaties before he came into this. And as the army is through, full on through, we eventually come to an interesting scene of where we come across what is one of, clearly one of the last determined lines of Lannister resistance. Where a large portion of their forces, seemingly with like, that one guy they kept on focusing on the older guy seemed like he was some kind of officer and so at least a guy yeah. that everybody else was looking to. Yeah, so we have one scene before that. Oh, um Kyburn sure. visits Cersei, who yeah. on the Mount Rushmore of people who are in denial on the show, Cersei is right up there. Very high. With my main man, R.I.P. Stannis, who thought that with like four hundred soldiers on foot he could lay siege to Winterfell. Um <laughs> Cersei says they only need one shot. Kyburn tells her, Well, all the scorpions have been destroyed. Spencer, when the scorpion, the last scorpion got destroyed, this is over, right? Yeah. I mean, the moment you can't take out the dragon, I mean, the show has seemingly indicated over the course of this episode that there's really no limit to how much fire a dragon can make. They don't need to, like, recharge or anything. They are fire-made flesh. Yeah, they can just uh, breathe it. Yeah. That, so, unless they have the scorpions, they have no other means of killing this thing. You've lost. You, They can just, at whim, lance over your forces and kill them as, 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 as they wish at their leisure. Yeah, um, Cersei says that the Iron Fleet is um, holding Blackwater Bay, and Kyburn says, well, <laughs> uh, not so much. Uh, another update for you. Uh, Iron Fleet is burning, and the walls have been breached. Cersei says the Lannister men will fight for her to the last man. This is It's hilarious, the timing of that comment. Um, then she says this, the Red Keep has never fallen. It won't fall today. I think this is a, um, I think this is a shout out to Watchers on the Wall. Yeah. Um, with that quote, you know, the, the, the yeah. Castle Black has never fallen. It's also not true in any sense at all. 
You were alive the last time it fell. Your father's forces took it. Yeah. No, I'm, well, I mean, uh, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess the king was dead at that point. Doesn't but... matter. Army still took it. It yeah. was still being defended. Yeah, well... It's not It's not much of a castle. It's a palace, anyway. Cersei Lannister, not a, uh, not a student of history. <laughs> We've confirmed over the course of the season that none of the Lannisters know their history. Tywin gave them an education, but history was clearly at the bottom part of their curriculum. John Grey Worm and Davos are leading the Unsullied through the streets. What the hell are you doing out front, Davos? You just what spent the last four seasons telling us you're not a fighter. We, we, we have seen before that as much as Davos says that, we saw that like the Battle of the Bastards. He's still willing to get into the, the scrum himself. Uh, it is dangerous for essentially all of our three remaining officers to be at the very front, front of one street of this army. But it seems to be all the tactics they really rely on at this point. None of these guys are really behind-the-scenes commanders. They catch up to the Northmen who are squared off with the Lannister troops. This is the scene you were talking about. Do you want to take over the recap here? Or you want me to forge on? You go on. Okay. Um, they, they're squared off with the Lannister troops. There's It cuts. To Tyrion, who's still walking around looking at the destruction, Light of the Stevens starts to play, which is that... Yeah. Um, Beautiful piece Raymond Gualdi did for Winds of Winter, which was the finale for season six. And the citizens are desperately running away from Drogon. And he lands within the city walls and lets out just belts of scream. It's not the last, that's not like, not the first time we've seen this strategy from Danny, where she has Drogon just scream to try to intimidate um, her, uh, her enemies. And the Lannister men hear the roar haha, and drop their swords. So much for the Lannister men fighting to the last man for Cersei. That that, <laughs> that went away in about two minutes. I mean, the sheer fact that that many are still resisting and holding this position is a compliment to them. The fact that they're even fighting on at this point is a credit to their training and their discipline and determination. They just There's nothing they can do. Any continual defiance at this point is suicide when that kind of thing is flying overhead. I... Yeah. I, 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 we talked before when we were doing the Battle, uh, Battle of Fire 2.0 that... There was a certain point that I just started to feel bad for the Lannister forces. I'm like, no one deserves to have to try to fight a friggin' F-16 jet fighter lancing around in a medieval period. It's just not fair. Completely agree. I have I have long since felt bad for the Lannister army. Um, I think they've been put in impossible positions by Cersei. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, so they, they all drop their swords. And John yeah. seems relieved. Little does he know. Uh, citizens start screaming for the bells to ring. And so, mm-hmm. what, what's interesting is I don't know if how realistic this is, but it seems like Cersei hears them screaming for the bells. Now, in the reaction pod, me and you kind of went back and forth on, uh, and I, actually, I don't even know if it was a reaction pod or if we were just talking offline. It all starts to blend together. But we were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, who gave the order to ring the bells. Mm-hmm. And you, I think your position was, tell me if I'm wrong, your position was, well, it wasn't Cersei. My, yeah, my position was it was Lannister forces acting on their own that she was not in a position to give the order and we didn't see her give the order. And she seemingly, for that much of this episode, really kind of appears paralyzed and not an active command. You, I, in on a, multiple rewatches, you are, I think, 100% right. I think that she doesn't know if the bells are going to ring here. Yeah. She's um, kind of waiting with, hold, with held breath to see what happens. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Jamie's running around trying to get into the Red Keep. Then we cut to an awesome, awesome, but really heartbreaking scene of Danny on Drogon. She's looking around, waiting for the bells. She's snarling and visibly angry in a way I've not seen that you know sort of visceral look um, mm-hmm. from from Danny ever. And and she's looking at the Red Keep, 
and the bells ring. John hears them. Um, Cut to Cersei, and she closes her eyes as she hears the bells because she knows it's over. Danny hears them as well, but her expression gets angrier and angrier. And this is where, like, the show really surprised me because I did not expect what was about to happen here. She stares at the Red Keep, lip trembling, halfway crying, and just takes Drogon up over the city. Now, this is the we, this is where we get the scene that Brandon envisioned when he got his werewood.net download. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we do get that sort of shout out. Uh, of Drogon in full wing spread, just shadow over the city kind of shit. Yep, absolutely, yep. Uh, and Danny keeps burning the city. And Tyrion is gobsmacked by this. Um, now, now this ahead. is the single, probably the single most con- controversial scene in the running of the show. Yep. For a lot of reasons, both in terms of the carnage that is depicted, and I got this is one moment of where I will let's let's compliment the show here. But they wanted to depict the horror of war. They wanted to depict utter chaos in a way we've never seen before, and absolutely in that regard, they succeeded. This was horrifying. This yep. was exhausting. Yep. This was honestly difficult to watch in terms of just the abject terror we're seeing play out as what is essentially a monster from the ancient world is devastating the helpless before it. It is full-on tragedy playing out, and in terms of how it is filmed, in terms of how it is paced, and how the music lances in it, it is damn near perfect, I would say. Yep, agreed. Um, Tyrion is gobsmacked. Grey Worm gets the message. Um, And, you know, I think the message to him is, no prisoners, we are going to show no mercy here. And he attacks the Lannister men who had already dropped their swords. Yeah. And, you know, when he does this, some of the Unsullied, some of the Northern men push forward. John tries to hold the people back. Yeah. Um, but and this is where you get that moment where Grey Worm gives, shoots John a look like, like they're not friends. Um, yeah. it's, it's a look of, I don't have time for you right now, but know what's coming. Yeah. And I'm telling you right now, folks, get your, get your Pepsi, get your popcorn, get in your seats because this Sunday... Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. We are getting John versus Grey Worm. I can't wait to see it. Uh, but by the time that John is able to, you know, get a few folks to stop, the Lannister army had picked their swords back up. So then he has to just sort of fight for self-preservation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that Grey Worm snaps like this. Um, what, what, you know, what do we make? What, we're going to have to do for both Grey Worm and Danny, but for him in particular right now, what do we make of him doing as he does here? I just think blind rage. I think, I when, think they, when they when the Lannisters cut off because to him it's not particularly nuanced. For yeah. him, they are the Lannisters, mm-hmm. and the Lannisters cut off Missandei's head when they didn't have to. It was just and, cruel. And, and I think it's very noteworthy that when we see Grey Worm in this scene, he's for one of the first times we ever seen him in a battle not wearing his helmet, not even wearing the majority of his armor. This is as close as we've ever seen him to a berserker in a way that's really not in keeping with the Unsullied. Nope. That. He is a proud soldier. He fights as a soldier. The Unsullied are marketed in some ways in the sense that they are professional soldiers to the core. You can count on them. Even when they attack a city, they won't go in wholesale carnage. They won't engage in rape or brutality or anything else because they are disciplined lockstep legions. (laughs) So Yeah, 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 I know. (laughs) There's another reason for the lack of rank, but (laughs) details. Um... But I feel like just even the visual depiction they put of Grey Worm here of how much of his own persona he's cast aside for the sake of rage. That he is a, a warrior in a way we've never seen him before given the stalwart soldier he's been in the past. Yeah, it's like you're reading off my notes because actually on my notes I have this this sentence. 
up until now, he's had a pretty good moral compass, I think. Yeah. Um, very much so. so it's it's very it's very much a, a heel turn for him as well. Yeah. Cersei see oh you anything more you want to say? Well, I think it's, he has a very good moral compass in large part because of what he's had to endure, um, because of what he's been forced to suffer through. But I feel like the show is really invested heavily in the idea that Nasende was one of the people that opened him up to something other than just blind loyalty, that gave him an idea of humanity and a complete view of the world that Danny maybe offered the potential for, but it had been seized and embodied in terms of her. And now that she's been lost and now that all he has left is this kind of blind sense of loyalty to Danny and a desire for revenge, we see it play out in horrifying fashion. Cersei sees that Danny isn't stopping and now starts to look genuinely terrified. Yeah. Um, because I, I would imagine that she thought that if she surrendered, it would stop. Uh, yeah. But it is not stopping. This is one of the few moments we've ever seen Cersei just legitimately in stunned silence. Of where this is just so not what she was figuring. That she'd invested so heavily in the idea of, I can keep poking Danny, I can keep setting her on and keep weakening her, because she can't pull this trigger. Even I wouldn't pull this trigger. But but Cersei's pulling. Danny's pulling it and pulling it hard. Yep. The Unsullied and the Northerners keep marching through the streets. Through the streets at this point, some of the Northmen are just out and out committing war crimes. Uh, it's a full-on sack of the city. We see a little girl paralyzed with fear, trying to hide. We see another little girl watch her mom's throat get slit, and Danny just keeps burning the city. And it's very apparent very early on that she's not just hitting Lannister forces. If anything, she's almost seemingly avoiding them because she's not hitting it in the areas where her army is. She's just burning every road. You can even watch that at one point. It was a beautiful shot of where she's purposely just following the roadways, just burning everything that she can it is very clear that her goal here is not a further defeat and humiliation of cersei's forces it is the end of king's landing and everyone in it yep we get a scene where john is watching all of this unfold and things slow down for him uh, again i think kit harrington is acting this hungover he doesn't seem to be on his a-game but i do question what john the character is actually thinking um my thought here is that he's just, uh, he is stunned at how wrong he was. He's stunned at how wrong he was and how much this has gotten completely out of his control. That if he'd made a few different decisions, he could have potentially maybe theoretically stopped Danny. If he made a few different different decisions, yeah. he could yeah. have gotten the army in a way that it was under his control and doing this in an organized, disciplined manner. Yeah, if he would have slept but, with his aunt. Sure, that is one example, maybe. But now... With the series of missteps and inaction he's displayed before, he is as, is as helpless as the citizens he's seeing butchered. Yep. Danny flies Drogon right at the Red Keep and fires on it. Um, it's interesting to me that Danny is willing to destroy the Red Keep. I would think that that, if she is... I don't even know. I, at this point, I think she's just blind rage. But if she was thinking logically, I mean, the Red Keep is really... Uh, it should be the pride of the Targaryen family. That was a, it was a monumental... Um, thing that they accomplished in building it. Oh no! It is the emblem of of of, of uh, power. It is the emblem of her house. It is what they. It's what they built on the location that the the Aegon's landing first occurred. Uh, it isn't um, one of the things that's very powerful about how they depict this going forward. And I think we mentioned this previously. Is that we never see Danny again this episode. We never see her reactions. We never see even any close up or even distant shot of her on Dragonback. She is 
her actions and her devastation are the only way that we actually see her depicted. And that makes it all the more intimidating, all the more terrifying, I feel like, in some ways. But in terms of what she's doing, let's, let, let's discuss this now before we get any farther, because it's, it's, it's mostly just straight carnage from here. But what does Danny have any reasoning here at all, or is this just a manifestation of rage? I am going to offer you two theories. Please. One, I don't really believe, but I find it interesting. And then two, I think, is the obvious answer. Yeah. So one, I think Danny needs John dead. She needs him dead for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, in the fact that he has undermined her, she loves him, he doesn't love her back, mm-hmm. but also because he has the better claim. And so one could posit that all of this is just a way to accidentally kill John and not be tagged for it. If so, there are a lot easier ways to do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, it's a thought I had. Now, yeah, it's a, this, it, it is. Re- I perfectly agree that she needs John dead, and that that may be a, a possible motivation. I just don't. I I don't think it's the controlling one right now. No, I think what when she told John, fear it is. This is how you rule by fear. You show people if you if you undermine me, if you oppose me, I will not only kill you. I will kill enough people, innocent people, that you will regret ever having done it. I mean, you know, I think Danny's going to die this next episode. So do you think this is a calculated decision on her part? Yeah, I think I mean I think that's what she was saying to John. She's like these people don't love me. You you have to in her mind you have to rule through one of two ways. You rule through love or you rule through fear. These people don't love me. Nobody around me loves me anymore. I have to rule through fear. Mm-hmm. You can't rule through fear without showing folks what you're capable of doing. And this is this is the in all time don't fuck with me ever ever again move. And I think that Danny's going to die this next episode because either Arya or John is going to kill her. But I think if they didn't she could rule for a long time because I don't see a rebellion coming um, when she still got that dragon and she showed she's capable of this. I don't know. I mean, at this point, I mean, we, we've we saw what um, the amount of defiance that they occurred to Aegon's dragons, even when people were aware of them, even when he had all three and a full army behind him. Dorne continued to defy him for you know generations. But he never did this. I mean, this no, is, no whoa. one's ever done this. That that's a fascinating thing. I, I was researching. We discussed a book in your pitching. Before. I looked into all the prior actions of you know, dragon related slaughter. We have to go back to old freaking Valeria to get even anywhere even close to this. And even that's just stories and myth. This is unheard of. Makor the Cruel didn't do this. He wouldn't have done this. It would have, it would have probably been the end of his reign if he did. I get the, what Danny's trying to do in terms of ruling by fear, but. If we want, if we want, if we want if, let's go back to Machiavelli. Machiavelli famously wrote about, is it better to be loved or feared? And he went feared because it was easier to maintain and less fickle. But he also coded it, but never be hated. This is, Danny. If, if she's going for fear here, she has crossed so ridiculously far over that, that she is so firmly in the realms of hate that she can never possibly leave it. Yeah, Machiavelli also said arm your enemies and, and be in, like, hang out with them. So, yeah. I don't know. He... Machiavelli- he he was a little sketchy. Some historians like to debate now that Machiavelli was actually writing this sarcastically to undermine the rule of a family that he hated. So it's interesting to think about the guide for rulers for many centuries could well be tongue-in-cheek. That, that was what I was referencing. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think that she's doing this. I do think it's calculated. Although I do think the extent to which she's doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm so glad we didn't see her on Dragonback, as you pointed out. I think it just gets good to her at a certain point. 
I think, I think that Targaryen blood gets boiling and it's just getting good to her. She's just enjoying it. I think that's what they're implying at a certain point, that she is essentially, be, be, be their calculated effort, whatever else, but at a certain point, she's just looking to punish those that have, in her mind, hurt her or more accurately supported those that have hurt her. That this, th there's a certain point that you've just passed into wanton violence. And she, if she just incinerated the Lannister forces and hit the Red Keep, that could have accomplished her objectives firmly and wholeheartedly. Lancing through each and every of the streets of King's Landing, letting your forces just run happy rampant through them, that is in love with your carnage in a way that can, that's the only way you can explain it. Yeah, this is one of those situations where like some of my friends are going to be like, damn it, you and Spencer agree on everything. But we, we do agree on like what I think that there was some level of calculation here, but I also got away from her. Oh, no. We're going to agree a lot in terms of how this scene is depicted. We both love it in terms of how it's played out. What we're going to yep. fight tooth and nail on about whether it's earned. Oh, yeah, well. Uh, I'm going to go through a recap of this next scene. Please. We've done this before on scenes that we thought were stupid. Um, Which one are you going with here? Um, the stupidest scene of the episode. And uh, I'm going to go through it. If you have anything you want to say afterwards, go ahead. But once I'm done with the recap, I'm done with this scene. So Jamie is trying to get into the Red Keep, and he runs upon Euron on the beach. Euron says the city is dying. It's over, but he wants to tangle with him, obviously. Jamie, uh, he mentions that Jamie could kill another king. Jamie says, you're no king. He said, oh, but I am. I fucked a queen, which doesn't. A point of order here, Spencer. That doesn't make you a king. <laughs> Jamie and Euron fight. It looks like Euron hasn't beat. I actually, I was keeping a kill list uh, with the notes on my phone during this episode. I actually wrote Jamie down here and had to, had, to, had, to, had to delete that. Stabs him in the side multiple times. Euron then lets his guard down, starts talking shit. Jamie picks up a sword, eventually stabs him through the chest. Euron then incorrectly states that he's the man who killed Jamie Lannister and seems to die happy. End scene done in what is six minutes that we're never getting back on this show and could have been used a lot better. Moving um, on. Moving on. My, Cersei my, is what... Yeah, my, you my, you my have something on this? My only remaining comment is just in reference to your lovely line about how that's not how you become a king, but if indeed it was so easy in life, if that was the way in life you acquired a job and a title, I really wish someone had told me that before I paid for law school because that would have been a much easier way to become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah you'd be barred in like 16 states by now <laughs> sure moving on moving on moving on Cersei is watching the red keep start to crumble um yeah uh Kyburn comes in and insists Cersei go to Magor Magor's hold fast mm -hmm. Cersei has tears running down her face she starts to openly weep but she pulls back Cersei takes Kyburn's hand and they begin the descent um you know down from the tower of the Red Keep um mm -hmm. and then down in the city this is a very interesting detail I'm so glad they included it wildfire ca wildfire caches start blowing up I, I again they've done a lot of references in this episode back to the Mad King and I love that additional touch in terms of this is in some ways the Mad King's will finally being accomplished and I love that the leftovers of his insane actions at self-destruction are finally coming to fruition through the actions of his daughter. I, I love the imagery behind that, and I love the, the cyclical connection to history there. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, very well put. Uh, Arya and Sandor walk into the Red Keep. Sandor correctly states that Cersei is going to die. He's, yeah. He, Sandor's logic is on point here. Some, somebody got some rest the night before. He is clear-minded because he Someone had out. To. Cersei is not going to survive this. Um, and he says, you need to get out of here, girl. Like, Cersei's going to die. And she, you know, does her little stamp my feet, walk past him, Arya thing. And he has this great quote. You think you've wanted revenge a long time? 
I've been after it all my life. It's all I care about. And look at me. Look at me. You want to be like me? You come with me. You die here. And it, he puts his hand on the back of her neck and she breaks. And you see this sort of, um, you know, this childishness, I guess you could say, or vulnerability that you just don't get from her that much anymore. Um, and, oh, my God. Niagara Falls, Spencer. Niagara Falls, she says, Sandor, thank you. Uh, we've talked before how much we've loved Arya and Sandor's um, interactions. And this just shows how powerful that can be of where it is a connection between them that I really hadn't given enough thought or credit. But in some ways, they're both revenge wraiths in terms of their motivations and their goals, at least in how the show's depicted them. And that's a bonding point that the Hound can have with Arya that lets him connect with her in a way that nobody else can. And it is a beautiful, touching, heartwarming moment that I adored, and I hate that I feel like the episode abandoned it before it's even over. But we'll get there. Well, uh, no, they gave they gave us us who have been very aware of the Arya Hound love, mm-hmm. um, which which I say that all smugly. But remember, like after the first time they met, like I was like, oh shit, they didn't give me what I wanted. Like <laughs> I've been, you I've did. been so you were so disappointed. <laughs> I've been so up and down with these two characters, but I am glad we got that final finale. That um, Sandor, thank you. It was a powerful um, scene. Powerful scene. Loved it. Yeah. And then we cut to Cersei. She's descending down the stairs and the, the Red Keep is not going to last much longer. Uh, the ceiling starts to cave in. The mountain actually stands over Cersei and Kyber and takes some hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of her Kingsguard goes down, it looks like. Um, they get up to leave. And what do they see, Spencer? Uh, they, they see the living embod- embodiment of Vuvuzela starting to go off. It's Copacane Bowl has finally begun! <laughs> you had that ready. Clegane Bowl, it happens, ladies and gentlemen. Sandor Clegane looks at the mountain. The mountain, uh, he says, hi, big brother. The mountain walks forward. Sir Gregor, stay by my side, Cersei says. He walks forward. Sir Gregor, I command you. Kyburn, real heat check here for Kyburn, says, uh, obey your queen, Sir Gregor. And then the possibly the funniest death of this whole fucking series. <laughs> the mountain slams Kyburn's head against the stone and tosses him down the stairs. Now, this was just funny. To me, like I just, I just yeah. laughed at it on a very like sort of basic level. But I also love the idea of like the Frankenstein killing the mad scientist it, uh, who yeah, has uh, subjected him to this, you know, this like horrific existence. We we see in the course of his interactions that there clearly is a bit of Gregor Gregor Clegane in here, and it is just shining through in this moment of where, yeah, thanks for keeping me alive. Fuck you into this wall. It, I, 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 too, very much enjoyed the references back to, like, Frankenstein, Bunster, and turning on his, his creation turning on him. And also, as you said, it's just damn hilarious in a way we really kind of needed among this carnage. Yeah, and then Cersei sort of slinks by, like a sort of don't mind me look. <laughs> um, and it's on, Spencer. It is on. And it is brutal. So, Clegane Bowl starts. The mountain's helmet gets knocked off. Um, and we get to see what a weird hot mess he really is. And, and I love how the hound has always treated this sort of zombie version of his big brother. He says, yeah, that's you. It's what you've always been basically Great saying, line. yeah, you, you've always been shit inside and like you, you just now looking the part, uh, they keep fighting. Now I score this first round even. Yeah. First, first round is surprisingly even between the two of them where they are both hurting each other. They're both pairing and we're learning pretty quick that, there's really nothing the Hound can do to the mountain. He, he does some damage to him over the course of these rounds, but does any of it really matter? 
Now, Cersei's in shock. She's walking around the room where she had the floor painted as a map of Westeros. And Jamie walks in. Spencer, I'm gonna let me go through it. I'm gonna ask you one question. I'm gonna let you ride. Please. So this overwhelms her. She cries and he goes to her and they hug. And for my money, this is the most romantic story about two twins sleeping together I've ever seen. <laughs> Seriously. Well said, sir. Yeah. Cersei notices he's hurt. Jamie points out that it doesn't matter. Cogent point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jamie shepherds her out of there. Spencer, are we supposed to give a shit about this? They're- are we supposed to feel sympathy for her or some sort of connection to their love? This is really weird on the showrunner's part, but they've always said that they viewed the two of them as the most romantic relationship on the show. They viewed them as star-crossed lovers. And in terms of the framing of all these events around the Mad King, these two were being framed as the re-embodiment of Rhaegar and Lyanna. And that's just weird. This is two toxic people in a relationship that is brought about... Really, that is the cause de facto of all the death and destruction before us. If you want to go back to the first friggin' domino. And they're framing this as being the ultimate tragedy of the episode of their love that could never be and their death together before Red Keep. And I just hate that so much. Here's what I need to know. I need to know D&D, right? The guys who created the show. I need to know, do they have sisters? Uh, you know, we can Google this. I do not know offhand. I think that could be potentially a, a motivating factor here. I'm going to call it. I think they, I think at least one of them has an attractive sister. Yeah, that's going to be a Thanksgiving conversation for them that I, it, the, the, the signs are there. Uh, Arya is now stumbling through the streets. Uh, oh no, we can go back to Clay Game Ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, still fairly even until the hound strips him of, uh, the hound, Sandor strips the mountain of his sword and stabs him through the chest. This does nothing. Uh, to the mountain and he knocks the uh to knock sandor down the stairs sandor shoots him a serious what in the actual fuck look um <laughs> the mountain pulls the sword out as well as part of his armor and walks forward sandor then starts laughing which i mean i guess it's sort of a silly situation he's got himself into he's fighting his undead brother he just stabbed him through the chest and the guy's not dead mm-hmm. the mountain tosses him again second round um i go to i give to sandor with with taking the uh, the sword off, but third definitely goes to the mountain. Third goes to the mountain hard, and in, in particular, it, it's like the the hound overcommitted to get in the position that he is, and he's just really realized what kind of fight this is in a way he did not expect. I think yeah. he was still hoping in some ways that yeah, he's a bit undead, but he'll die by normal human terms, and he is wrong. Arya is now stumbling through the streets, and it's complete chaos. Uh, to your point, the, the show does a really good job of showing, hey, look, when a city gets sacked. And it's burning. It's fucking, you know, every man for himself. It's tough. Um, dead women and children are everywhere. Buildings are falling down. Things are on fire. Drogon is shrieking overhead, and she gets caught in a crowd running. And then we get a great sequence. Like, God, Miguel Sapochnik. Shout out to you. Uh, because, I mean, some could argue you weren't given a whole heck of a lot uh, to work with. But there's this beautiful sequence of Arya trying to get up and go forward on the street. And, the, and Sandor trying to get up and continue his fight against the mountain. Mm-hmm. That was very well paired there. Rounds four and five definitely go to the mountain. Right. Uh, he just is beating the hell out of uh, Sandor at this point. Arya struggling to get up. And that mother we saw outside the Red Keep um, grabs Arya's hand and pulls her up. Arya mm-hmm. then pulls them forward and is trying to, to take care of them. Uh, Spencer, question for you. Where's everybody running? Where are you going to? I don't, I don't think they know. 
I think they're just trying to be away wherever that is in any given moment. I mean, clearly we see a lot of people trying to shelter indoors, but as we've seen with the structure-destroying fire that Drogon's thrown out everywhere, there's nowhere to go. It's just death everywhere. At least if you're in a building, you only can be killed by the dragon fire because then the soldiers in the Dothraki that are running rampant aren't going to cut you down or do worse to you. Um, so they really heavily and effectively instill throughout all these scenes that it's just helpless confusion. That's all that's that's all that's running through these people right now. Yeah. Uh, cut back to Cleganebal. Mountain lifts up Sandor by his neck. Sandor takes a knife and pincushions him. Gets four or five good stabs there. Um, the mountain then grabs him by his head and he does that eye move that he did to Oberlin. Oh yeah. That was major. That was straight I was their fight. Really, really concerned here, Spencer at 11 that we were going to get the death of Sandor by head explosion. I was not ready for that. Yeah. Um, but before he can watermelon crush his head, Sandor stabs the mountain through his head, which makes the mountain pull back, but he is not dead. Mm-hmm. He pulls the knife out. And Sandor charges forward as the music plays. They both fly out of the window of the Red Keep uh, into the fires below. And die in fire. Another two characters from season, from early season one out of our story. Yeah, uh, I think Clegainbow lived up to the hype. It, it did live up to the hype. Um, I'm one of those fans that really hopes we'll never get it. Because I'm actually quite happy for the resolution that the Hound has gotten. I mean, the resolu- I liked in some ways the, the talk that the Sandor and Arya had here. Because it harkened back to what I hope is the actual resolution for his character in the books. In terms of meeting and talking with someone who knows that pain. Who knows that desire for revenge. And being able to escape it because of that. And find a moment of peace outside of it. The Hound seems like he's going towards getting that in the books, and I hope it's for him. But in terms of what they built up here and the hype and carnage and just rage-defying quest for revenge that we see behind Clue Game Bowl in the show, I was impressed. I was invested. And as you said, I was really afraid we were going to get another Viper explosion before that fight was done. Yeah, that was worrisome. Uh, I didn't feel good about that. Um, okay, well, then we cut to John. And he's on the streets, and he sees the wildfire exploding. He sees Danny is nowhere near done torching the city. Him and Davos share a look, which I can only classify as what have we done. Mm-hmm. John orders the northern men to fall back. They generally listen. Um, uh, Spencer, why did he call them back? Why did he say fall back? I've got... <sighs> I mean, I think the large main motivation at this point is self-preservation. That at this point, Danny is just being so indiscriminate that it's the even the friggin' roads that are adjacent to them are going up in flames. If they don't get out now, they're under risk that she's going to cut you down just in her utter lack of caring. So I think that's a key part of it. I think that's honestly the main part of it. I think it's just a full and a full and effective realization that there's nothing we can do to control the situation. All we can do is try to survive it. And so let's get out now. And that seems to be what's motivating the majority of the northern forces because whatever bloodlust that they were in. They seem to have snapped out of it at this point enough to go, okay, killing and murdering and raping is fun, but living till tomorrow is probably my primary goal. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a, a callback to this scene when John talks to Danny about what the hell just happened, because I could see him definitely pointing out to her, like, I had to pull your army out of the city because you were close to burning them all up. Like, you yeah. were that out of control. Now, notably, we only see northern, for- Nor- northern and Vale forces retreat. 
We do not. I did not see any unsullied pulling back. I don't or think Dorothy Grey Worm was pulling matter. him back. Yeah, I don't think Grey Worm was pulling him back. I don't think Grey Worm gives a fuck at this point. Though we see in the trailer for the next episode that seemingly thousands of, of Unsullied are still alive and around. Yeah, yeah. Um, Arya wakes up with some horrible cuts on her head. She's covered in ash. How many times has Arya been blown up at this point? Because it's a few. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'll get to that. Uh, smoke inhalation's got to be an issue, but I guess that's like oh, that's way down the list for her. Volc- Volcano coolosis is going to hit at a certain point. <laughs> She stumbles around coughing. Uh, a tower almost falls on her. But she's able to duck into a room. And then, and by the way, when this one happens, even my mom is like screaming like Sandor at the mountain. Like, fucking die. She would be dead. Yeah. Fucking die. Like the, the, like the nine lives of Arya. Starting to get ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Arya sees a group of folks huddled in a room. One of them is the mom who saved her earlier. And the door. Yeah. And Arya sends them to their death by saying they have to keep moving. Um, If you stay here, you'll die. Um, And then the Dothraki are just running around chopping people. This is old hat for those fuckers. I think this is like the ultimate like Dothraki in their zone thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they run down the mother. They do injure the mother, but she's not dead. Um, Arya sees Drogon is still going. She gets the mother up. She starts to run. The mother falls by my count, the mother says, take take my daughter, get her out of here. Arya tries to. The daughter goes back for her mom. Really heartbreaking scene there. Drogon lays waste to everybody and they burn up. Yeah. And Arya, once again, I mean, by, by the point that uh, when she's avoiding that, the flames are literally looking at her back as she's diving behind walls. I mean, her, her defiance of death is at this point, you got to be convinced that she's only alive because she is death's avatar and it is not her time. I need to see Arya with with burnt hair and like scorched eyebrows in this next episode. Yeah, she's this moment in particular when she's diving away from the mom and the daughter. It looked almost like she was fully engulfed in fire. Yeah, Jamie and Cersei are in the crypts slash basement, and we see some of the dragon skulls. Yeah, they're still there. And Jamie clearly has a route that he's trying to take, uh, and it's blocked. And Cersei sees that very clearly right away. And Cersei starts to piece together that she's not going to live. Okay, for all the folks out here, and there's a lot of them who say Cersei didn't get her come up and she didn't hurt. She got out easy. I give you this quote. I want our baby to live. I want our baby to live. I want my baby to live. Don't let me die, Jamie. Please don't let me die. I don't want to die. Not like this. Not like this. Not like this. Cersei did die scared, afraid. Um, and uh, she got her. She got her comeuppance. I, I'm going to call that. She unquestionably got her comeuppance. I don't know whether this kind of breaking down is in keeping with her character. I don't think there's a damn thing others she could have done to survive this, given the wholesale destruction they showed Drogon as being capable of. But I pictured a lot more defiance out of her. Um, I mean, who knows what you're going to do in the moments when you're seeing your death facing you, but Cersei always has seemed to me previously as somebody that would still spit in death's eye just out of sheer pride. Um, but here at least she breaks down and tries to find comfort in Jamie's arms. Yeah. I think that's just because she's talking to Jamie, right? Like, I mean, if she was down there with Kyburn, she wouldn't be telling Kyburn, don't let me die. Kyburn, don't let me die. Sure. Um, Jamie has Cersei look at him. Uh, he says, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Only us. Great music here. Uh, it starts with the light of the seven and goes to reigns of Castamere. I love, I love exactly what, um, Raymond Waldi did. Uh, the ceiling falls down around them. And for everyone who is questioning, did they die? They're fucking they, dead. Come a on. castle fell on their head. Yes, they're dead. Like, I don't know how else you want them to show it. Like the castle fell on their fucking head. They're dead. Yeah. The, the show's played fast and loose with plot armor for a few seasons now, but 
as you said, the Red Keep collapsed in on them. They're dead. There's no way you can say they didn't die there. Also, just from a show thematic standpoint, they clearly are showing their deaths and wanting this to be a powerful scene. Yep. Cut to sometime later and ash is falling down through the city and it's eerily quiet. Uh, practical question for you, Spencer. So we've all been asked the question, God knows how many times, who sits the throne at the end? Mm-hmm. Nobody, right? There's no throne. There's- well, there's enough of a throw. Well, I fully do believe that the vision that Danny had in season two is going to play out in some way, in the sense that there is a throne room. It's just a ash-covered, resembling snow ruin. Uh, but as 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 to your point, yes, Danny has destroyed the heart of the kingdom she wants to rule. She's destroyed the very seat, physical and cultural and you know symbolic of her power. There is no Iron Throne anymore. If, well, if it remains, it isn't sitting in the twisted ruins that sit at the top of uh, the Red Keep. So, can somebody tell Danny while she's up in the sky, like breathing fire down, that they she can't just Airbnb a place to stay? Like she's got to figure, like she's got to stay somewhere. Yeah, you I mean, burned everything. Where the hell are you going to sleep? I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in the Riverlands, really? In this season with this market? Come on now. Yeah, and they're going to be really hyped to have you there. Yeah, come on <laughs> in. Please um, welcome. Happy to have you. Arya gets up and she looks some combination of horrified and sad. Death and destruction is all around her. The Stark theme plays. Um, she sees the mother and the daughter that were roasted to ash as the uh, as the daughter, I think, had put her arms around the mother. Really tough scene there. Oh, it's it, it, they, They've done very well before in terms of depicting just the carnage of death by fire. And they are pulling straight from Pompeii in terms of just this very intimate moments of death that she just sees around her. Things sort of slow down for her and she sees a pale horse. Spencer! And I looked, and behold, a pale, pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed him. Um, I think it's clearly a shout out to uh, that Bible verse. Um, question yeah. for you. Um, what do you think of the theory that the horse was being worked by Bran? Re- um, reasonable. Maybe even sensical, but not shown. I mean, they they could have indicated or hinted at that by, you know, the, the horse's eyes flashing in a variety of ways that would have given us some degree of foreshadowing of that, but it's just not depicted. So I think it's would be abundantly possible if they'd given us the slightest degree of showing for it. Agreed. I don't think that that's what the show's going for. I think they're going for just what I said. It's a reference to the, the Bible verse about uh, death riding a pale horse. And Arya is death at this point. So I'm not feeling real good about Jamie's chances. I am feeling good about our chance to get through the damn recap because this show, this episode is over. Um, yeah. Anything you want to say about the episode um, uh, before we jump into Best Line? A few things. Uh, but just, just to give credence to your literary acumen, which, again, good catch good, good catch there in terms of death riding a pale horse. That is a reference to Revelations and the uh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And it is a classic uh, foundational uh, sim- symbolism of the, of the English language, of, um, well, of literature in general, particularly the English language from the King James Bible. And so I, very much they're tying into uh, Arya being an avatar of death here and perhaps foreshadowing what her role is going to be in the next episode in some shape or form. Um... One of the overarching questions I want to debate with you, and we got to got to address it because it has been wrapping the fandom up in knots. It has led 500,000 people on change.org to sign a petition for new writers for the show. Have you seen that? Meh. Yeah, I know. Uh, there's a lot of change.org petitions. But do we feel that Danny's turn in this episode was sufficiently set up, or is it coming out of left field? 
I mean, I think that, you know, it's some combination of both. Like, I think that people who argue that it wasn't set up enough, I think you're right. I mean, I think we they definitely could have done 10 episodes this season and given you three or four episodes where this was tele- telegraphed a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to, this is, we talk, I've mentioned this every time we've done one of these pods on season eight. It, look, guys, you can always make that complaint. Every one of these episodes, you're going to be able to say it feels rushed. As yeah. soon as we heard that the final season was going to be six episodes, we you could just gonna. you could put that in your shotgun and fire it off every time you watch an episode that it feels rushed. Got it. it feels rushed. But that being said, it certainly isn't not foreshadowed. Like, I mean, there's you have so many characters worried that she's going to do it. I mean, Tyrion has brought this up how many times? Concerned that she's going to burn King's Landing and burn, you know, uh, innocent people? I don't think they were worried about this, though. I don't think... Maybe only Varys may have been potentially directly worried about this. I think they just assumed the natural currents that would befall the city. I mean, even even Tyrion's description of tens of thousands could die is clearly aiming low compared to what we just saw performed. Um, I don't know whether anybody was actually direct... Even Tyrion's reaction just looked utterly shocked that she would so thoroughly turn not just on Cersei, not just on the emblems of power, but on the people. That... We have seen before, of the course of the show, Danny willing to do evil things. And I don't think, I think people have often been too willing to forget that. That season, season friggin' one, she was burning people in a fire, alive. Season two, she was locking former supporters in a vault to die by, to die by starvation. Season, you know, three, she was ordering the execution of an entire political class of the city of Astapor. Season four, she she literally lined the roads of her new kingdom with the crucified bodies of the nobles that used to rule there. Um, going into more recent seasons, she has ordered, you know, gladiatorial games to be brought back, but that, that had its own reasons behind it. She's ordered the direct execution and incineration of people that are just standing for their own honorable views. Um, Cersei, I mean, Danny's always been willing to do things that are immoral, I would say. But they always had a justification they always had a certain degree of political calculus at play, be it personal revenge, be it literally triggering magic, be it in direct response to crimes being committed by the people in front of her. We've never seen her just engage in wholesale wanton slaughter. This is very much, I feel like, the first time we've even pondered her being capable of that. And as you said, I think that they've been trying to foreshadow it. I think they just had the misfortune that basically all of the foreshadowing that she might be coming to this point was in the same episode it happened. And that just does not work. Um, it's, it's, it's gotten very overset at this point to say it's rushed, but with how important this is, with how much it is wrapping up who the ultimate villain of the show is, and how the last episode of the enti- the finale of the entire series is going to be focused upon, they had to give us at least one more episode for this. It's too important. It's too much of a swerve from everything we've seen before in terms of framing how far she's gone down the rabbit hole. That, as I said, your most important bit of character foreshadowing and development is in the recap. You've done something wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, I, I here's my problem with that type of criticism is that then there was you were never going to be happy with a six episode finale because they they I, never were going to have enough. Um, enough time in six episodes to do what you're talking about if they're going to choose to end it in this way yeah i mean that but that's gonna be a problem of how you've structured out your six episodes rather than necessarily what what you could have done with them well i i posit that that this 
this uh, this bullet point was given to them by George R. R. Martin. And I will that was the next point I wanted to talk about. But I fully a hundred percent agree with you that there are like three or four bullet points this episode that in my mind scream these were in the notes we got, and we had to find a way to make them work, and some worked better than others. I also get frustrated, and I'm not I'm not saying you're you're doing this because you're you actually have a like a more nuanced take about this than what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. But I get frustrated with folks who are like, the first four episodes of this season, they were so mad that everything was predictable. And then they get a swerve and they go, well, wait a second. That wasn't telegraphed enough for me. Like that needed to be, and it's like, wait, yeah. what, what do you want to be shocked or not? Because I fall in the, in the thing of I, what I love about the show, despite the, I mean, the world creation I love, I love the characters, I love the acting, the music, obviously. But I do like that they swerve you sometimes when you're not expecting it. Yeah. And they gave me that. Like, I was surprised. I was, I was turning looking at, uh, at Sarah. I was like, is this really fucking happening? Is she really doing this? Mm-hmm. And that's a great moment. And that the show the show gave us one last one where I was not expecting it to happen. So I like that. And the yeah. folks who are, who are complaining that it wasn't telegraphed enough for them, it's like, well, were you complaining in the first four episodes that everything was too telegraphed? I would agree that that complaint can get overwrought. Um, it could particularly be come across as very hypocritical. But I still feel that the best swerves are the ones that you don't see coming, but can justify after the fact. And I feel like those are the ones that are very subtly and well foreshadowed. Like we talked about the wonderful swerve that was the Red Wedding. That was heavily foreshadowed in a lot of scenes and a lot of buildup in a lot of ways. But we didn't see it or didn't want to see it. And that made it in some minds all the more strong from a plot standpoint. This, there was a little bit of foreshadowing. But again, it was very much crammed into the same episode where it occurred, and at least for me, that is shoddy plotting, even if it makes for a even if it makes for a surprising moment. Um, if I was advising D and would tell them to just just throw all this out because it's it's just not a fair comparison. I mean, you have probably the greatest moment um, in fantasy literature ever, sure. the, the Red Wedding, that you're you're comparing this again. I understand why you're comparing it against it because it's part of the series, and that was a high point of the series. But I don't think they that D and D me you anybody other than Martin taking ten years to write a book is going to come up with something that masterstroke. No, no. So no. they did their best. I liked it. It worked for me. Is it the Red Wedding? No. Is there some potential problems with it? Yes. But this whole thing of like, well, season eight is trash is just that. That's just mindless and stupid to me. Man, this is like letting the army loose in King's Landing without order or structure. This is one of the things of where it will. Whatever their motivations for coming here, whatever loyalty they had before they arrived on scene, the fan base has been left to their own devices, and they are just engaged in wholesale carnage. <laughs> That's a good comparison. <laughs> Thank you, I try. But I mean, I, I agree with you that this is another episode in my mind of where, as its own achievement, it should be complimented absolutely for an incredible production piece. My problem with it is just where it stands in the lexicon of where they have so many important plot points that they've been tasked with trying to reach with trying to explain build up set up that they've been given an impossible task in that regard and as we talked about in terms of you know in our discussion of episode three the battle of winterfell that i don't envy them for what they've had to endure in terms of plotting this out george r R. martin left them up a creek without a paddle in terms of here are my vague plot notes connect them however you want that's and not oh, what by the way, up. and oh, by the way, HBO telling them, no, you cannot wait two or three years for Martin to finish the book. You have to yeah. do it now. And there's no way they could win with that. It was never going to rival the quality and the pacing of the storytelling of what he's taken literally fucking 17 years now to try to write. 
Um, they, they never were going to be able to accomplish that. They always were just going to have to stare down these moments in notes with no explanation of how to get from point A to point C. And they've done the best they could with it. If I have quibbles and problems with that, I say them from a point of sympathy rather than the rank condemnation I'm saying. Uh, yeah. so. That's fair. That's very fair. I mean, I, I think all your criticisms are valid. And I like that you're allowing me to sort of caveat it with like a little bit of sympathy for the, the show. No, no, no. I, and, yeah. I, and I legitimately hold that. We're going to the next Game of Thrones convention for how much we enjoy the show and enjoy the fandom and enjoy the experience of it. That's where we're at. I can. I am still of a mind of where I can enjoy something and I can be excited for it, and at the same time can be disappointed when it does something I feel is weak or, or, or whatever else. I mean, as we both agreed on, we have serious problems with in terms of the relationship that the show went with Cersei and Jaime. But that yep. doesn't detract from, say, the power of the scene of when Jaime and Tyrion interacted with each other, even though he's sending Jaime off to Cersei. It's still an honest and tender moment that the show should deserve credit for being able to pull off. Yep. Completely agree. Um, so as you mentioned, we are going to um, Con of Thrones. So uh, Con of Thrones is in July. If you want to come to Con of Thrones and join us, please do that. That'll be a lot of fun. In the wonderful city of Nashville, which I've actually received my check from the Nash- Nashville Tourism Bureau, so I feel free saying this now, but it is a legitimately great city to visit if nobody, if you guys haven't been there before. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, anything we want to touch on before we go to best line of the episode? No, I think we can go through any other complaints or quibbles or whatever else in book nerd bitching. Because there's, there's, some, there's some stuff to discuss there, both historical and more recent. Okay, because I'm trying to pull up our bets so we can do a a quick recap of our bets. Uh, I got Clegane Bowl. I got that one. I did firmly have now presumably lost Cersei wins at the end of the series. You did. You lost that one, so I get 30 bucks for that. Um, Danny dies. You said yes. Straight up bet ten bucks. That's looking real good. That's looking real fucking good now. Unless this series goes, to, I mean, that, if you want to talk about defying expectations, you said that this was the last swerve. Eat your words, sir. There's a lot they can still do before this is done. Yeah, true. I, I think they're gonna kill Danny. I think that's. I think be. they are too. Uh, Bron gets a castle. You said yes, and you gave me three to one odds. I'm feeling good about that one. I don't know if we're ever going to see fucking Braun again, honestly. I think they're going to forget about it. which case, I'm taking implied castle. Uh, I don't think so. I think we're going to see him kill Tyrion. Uh, John survives. You said yes. And you gave me three to one odds. Uh, that one's looking pretty good. I, I think that one's okay. In large part, just based on who we're debating, is going to be the one to put, to put the blade in. I still think it's going to be John. We got money on that. We'll see. Danny, John, and company win the Battle of Winterfell in episode three. You said no, gave me two to one odds at 10 bucks. That's $20 in my pocket. Enjoy it. Sam writes the Song of Ice and Fire. You said yes, straight up bet 15 bucks. I'm not sure we're seeing Sam again. As I pointed out in our last podcast, he's in Cary, North Carolina. Um, (laughs) I still love you referencing that. Going to farmer's markets every Saturday morning. His kids are in year-round school. It's lovely. It, it, it depends what kind of note they want to end the series on. I still think they could do it to make it a little less bittersweet uh, or a little just less straight up bitter. Um, but we'll see. I think that one's at least has this, some degree of still possibility, but it's entirely just how they want to frame the end of the story. Will Clegane Ball happen? Yes, you win. $15. Congratulations. Thank you. First to die in episode three. Uh, you took Grey Worm. I took Jorah. I was more right, but I was not right. hundred uh, percent straight up bet. Fifteen bucks. We push on that one. Okay, well, that's the update. I mean, we, we, we were in some ways hindered there because we both assumed that Ed was going to def- was going to die before the even battle started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I would have taken him if I knew he was on the table when the battle started. But yeah. though we were also we were going to take Tormund there too, which we proved imminently wrong about. You cannot kill him. 
And he's got that that giant's milk. Oh yeah, nothing. nothing tor- I mean, I'm almost willing to bet we'll see Torment again before the end of the series if it plays out how I think of John going north. Okay, um, I am going to yet again, second time in GOT Got Questions podcast history, invoke my right as Emperor of Best Line of the episode to forego the back and forth on Best Line. You're good. Part because there's not a lot of good lines in this episode. A lot of good battle, but not a lot of good lines. I got, I've got total. I think I got four that I written, I wrote down. But if you're going with what I think you're going to go with, there's no need to even debate this. I am going with best line of the episode, season eight, episode five, the bells. All right then, let it be fear. Yeah, uh, that was the one I was going to recommend. It's not my favorite line. It's not even necessarily the most powerful line, but it is the line that sets where the show will end. It's got to get it. It's it's too damn important. It's the foreshadowing we get. It is the arc that they've wrapped that they're going to wrap up the entire series with. It wins best line, full hands down. Yep. All right then, let it be fear. We don't like the line, but it is line of the episode. Uh, now, Spencer, book nerd bitching, take it away. Yeah, I don't have much necessarily to reference here. We've done a lot of the direct bitching for comparisons, and we are so far outside of the books that there's almost no point in referencing back to them. But there's just a few things I want to do, one of which gives credence to um, what the show depicted about the carnage of the battle. Um, It is an often forgotten aspect of both classical and medieval warfare, people, you know, associating the chivalry that that you imagine of knights and attorneys, that this kind of wholesale slaughter is in some ways like a modern invention or a, mo- a modern result of mechanized warfare. But we've got to remember that as state as classical history appears, it is the limited accounts coming from those that were writing about it and that survived it and were in a position of a lofty tower to have perspective and knowledge necessary to put it to paper. It was a brutal, brutal era of where our modern standards of morality had absolutely no relevance to any discussion of how warfare was carried out. And one of the most prime examples of that was in the terms of siege warfare. That throughout the classical era, you know, Romans, Greeks, that kind of period of history, extending through the medieval era into the values of chivalry, it, the standards by which a siege would be ju- would be governed in terms of what how the inhabitants would be respected were directly hinging on a single question. When I knocked at the door and gave you an opportunity to surrender, did you say yes? If you did... You got to surrender, your city would be unassailed, we'd ask for certain degrees of resources, and we'd move on. Put in a new governor and put in some troops, but you would be utterly unharmed and molested. If the answer was no, or if you didn't even answer under the terms that I liked, your lives are forfeit. That countless rulers, including alleged paragons of chivalry, throughout these periods, operated under the accepted rules of warfare at the time that if a city refused to yield in the initial going, your troops were free to do whatever they with whatever they wanted with it once the city fell. That was how sieges were governed for literally hundreds and thousands of years. That if the city surrendered in the front, it would be protected. If it didn't, you would lay waste to it. You would enslave the inhabitants. You would allow your troops freedom to sack and take and rape whatever they damn well pleased. It's basically an added perk of their employment. So, in terms of the slaughter we see depicted and the concern that people like Tyrion and Varys and whatever else had, we've talked before that it came across as sometimes as being a bit namby-pamby and short-sighted and whatever else, that she could just go in and incinerate the Red Keep. 
But to the degree that her army is in any way involved, it is opening up the potential for a slaughter. That the moment that Cersei says no, the moment the people don't immediately cast her out or throw her down, by the standards of warfare by which the age is judged in both our world and theirs, the city is subject to whatever rules the conquerors wish to inflict upon it. They have surrendered their right for independent will. They have surrendered their right for any assumption or guarantee of mercy or protection. They operate at the whims of their conquerors. And as we saw that play out in terms of this show, the whims of the conquerors are capricious and angry. We're talking about people, if they're alive at this point, have endured how much wanton slaughter and carnage and betrayal at the hands of the Lannister ruling order. That if they weren't straight-up survivors of the Red Wedding, which probably very few of them were, they lost family members there. That if they, if every one of the Northerners present has lost a family member, a friend, in terms of the deaths in Rob's attacks in the South, in terms of the slaughter of his army at the Red Wedding, in terms of the infixing of the Boltons by the Lannisters to rule over Winterfell, I would be very, very surprised. And also, from just an immediate standpoint, they're existing under the immediate betrayal of they were sworn that the Lannister army and Cersei would be marching north to fight against the coming apocalypse. That instead, they had to stand alone and watch their family and their friends and their loved ones die to the hands of the undead with a gap beside them where the Lannisters were promised to be. That... As they approach this city and as we see the carnage that they inflict, it was hard to watch. It is a side of the Northern Army that we've really not seen since season friggin' three, when Brienne came across those rapers in the Riverlands. It's something we probably didn't really want to see. But both from the motivations that they're bringing in from what we've seen previously on the show, and in keeping with the principles of warfare at the time, without some degree of leadership in place to bring them to order, to set a different goal for how this will be judged... The laws and customs and motivations of the individual characters govern, and wholesale slaughter was the rule of the world for a long period of human history. So that in no way justifies the utter absence of duty, the utter absence of authority we see on behalf of people like John and Davos and Grey Worm and anything else resembling a leadership of Danny's army, but it makes a certain degree of unfortunate and terrifying sense of the slaughter and devastation we see played out. So that, that's just the first little bit of historical knowledge. I uh, hope that gives you just a, a nice, a, a little bit of coda about our own human history applied to their world. Well, you're running the hill right now, man. This, this bill passes. Yet another good one. Okay. Uh, another short one that just ties in. We, I kind of already talked about this in terms of just the devastation that we've seen dragons inflict uh, before in the history of this show. Of where a lot of people like to frame the prior actions of Targaryen rulers as just being abject, horrendous brutality. And there are events in the history that are unquestionably brutal uh, that the Targaryens engaged in. However, nothing even vaguely resembles the act that Danny just inflicted. Danny set a new bar. It is setting a new bar, and it is setting it so low, deep in the earth that it is right, that it is clearly drawing from the molten mountain core, given the amount of fire and brimstone we see inflicted upon the world. Um, Prior actions by Targaryens have a few ones that are notable, just to mention, though, that kind of set a bit of a precedent for what Danny did, if on a much more limited and controlled scale. Um, one example, and one of the most famous examples of that, goes back to the time of Aegon's conquest, of where 
Aegon was, as we've talked about, willing to use his dragons to bring armies to heal, to bring cities to heal. But most of that time it was from a, stake of, uh, from a position of intimidation. That once a dragon arrived over an, era, an area, it typically gave in. There were times when that was not the case, often when people were very intelligently using their forces in a way the dragons couldn't act. But most of the time the dragons were used for their value of intimidation. The ruling through fear without needing to pull the trigger. Knowing you've got the force and knowing you can is often more than sufficient. However, dragons were wielded on several occasions to utterly devastating effects. We've talked before in the show about Field of Fire 2.0, and I've discussed in Book Nerd Bitching Field of Fire, the original Field of Fire of when the forces of House Lannister and House Gardner attempted to form an allied front against the relatively still fledgling Targaryen army. And while they had success on the ground, they got to experience the only time in all history that Aegon unleashed all of his three dragons at the same time to... An effect that was so devastating that House Gardner ceased to exist, and House Tyrell now ruled. Well, I say now, after thereafter ruled ruled the Reach. A more on point example of Aegon, though, comes from the uh, well, what remains of the castle at Harrenhal. If you remember back to and remind me, man, is it season three or season four that we see Harrenhal? Three, season three. We yeah. see Harrenhal. Actually, as no, isn't it? No, it's season two. Because it's before Tywin right. marches back to the Blackwater, yeah. You're right. It's, it, it, we were wondering what Tywin's doing in terms of where he's sending his forces. You're right. All the way back in Season 2, we got to see Harrenhal, which is this massive, ruined, melted castle. This ghost of a ruin that exists in the middle of the Riverlands. Still the most mighty and powerful and colossal castle in all of Westeros, but left in abject ruin, both because of what the Targaryens did it and because it's so damn massive that no one could afford to repair it. It was the work of House Hor, and I really do think that's how it's pronounced, despite the fact it's spelled H-O-A-R-E. Checks out. Okay. Which, you know, merits given up what assholes they were. They were, prior to the Greyjoys, the ruling house of the Iron Isles, and this is a stage when the Iron Isles were really fucking powerful, in the sense that they had conquered a vast section of Westeros, including all of the Riverlands. It's the reason that we have seven kingdoms rather than eight, despite there being eight component regions, because at the time Aegon showed up, the Riverlands were part of the Iron Isles as a combined kingdom. In demonstration of their authority, they built the massive castle in Harrenhal, using all of the resources of the Riverlands to do it, casting countless lives and, un and unnecessary waste to build the single largest castle the world had ever seen. And it was essentially completed on like the day of Aegon's Landing, where Modern King's Landing is. That rather than face Aegon in the field, having just watched the Field of Fire, leaders of House Hor retreated to their castle and essentially defied him to try to root them out. It was a castle that no amount of armies and no amount of forces could ever hope to breach, ever. It had too much resources inside it. It could last a siege longer than any army outside of it could hope to endure. And forces of plenty and uh, defenses of such strength that no amount of army could ever hope to overcome them. Dragons, however, could. That Aegon unleashed, you know, I think he may have just unleashed Balerion alone, um, but in a single evening, lancing over the castle, incinerating the tallest towers, melting it into just a pile of ruins before him, House Horror ceased to exist. The, Great jo the uh, Iron Isles' rule over the Riverlands fell apart, and they retreated to the Iron Isles to later submit when his dragons came once again. But as we can see in terms of what he was willing to do, Aegon, with the notable exception of Dorne, which I can go into if you want, 
was really wielding his dragons in a relatively controlled manner. He knew what they were capable of. He knew what fear they had embodied in them. And so he felt that he could use them when necessary, but often just use the threat of them as sufficient to bring people to heal. We see that in the famous The King That Knelt, the last uh, Torin Stark, the last king in the north before Rob took up the mantle, that hearing what had happened, seeing the dragons arrayed before him, that was enough. And likely the, likely the um, Targaryens knew that, or expected that he might do that. That he bent the knee and saved his army in the process as they marched north and Rather than incinerate them for defying him, for still representing a threat, he accepted their he accepted their uh, their surrender. He accepted them accept, uh, bowing to his authority and christened him as warden in the north rather than the king of the north. The only real example of Aegon engaging in wholesale carnage was in Dorne itself, which refused to submit and continued to defy, and then had the audacity to not only kill a dragon but kill one of his wives. But even then, most of the devastation was being directed on the nobility themselves, to a certain degree the cities as well. In terms of something that's more along the lines of what Danny inflicted, uh, we have to look at what was viewed as the most infamous of all Targaryen kings, Makor the Cruel. The son of Visenya, one of Aegon's sister wives, he ruled as, I believe, the uh, second or third Targaryen king? I think the third. Third. Third, thank you. Yep. Um, and was famous for his abject brutality. One moment that both brings to mind what Danny did here, and also very particularly what Cersei did back uh, in the end of season six, was his attack on the uh, Great Sept. This was before the Sept of Baelor existed. It uh, was built thereafter because of what happened here. But Makor was dealing with the fact that uh, the Faith of the Seven refused to accept his um, legitimacy, refused to accept that he, being a product of incest, had a right to rule, in contrast to their previous agreeing to submit, or at least accept, the authority of Aegon. That he had to deal with the seven stars, the poor fellows, the faith of the seven, and um, their armed forces, the faith militant, coming to the fore and leading essentially an active rebellion against him. And seeing this, he decided to nip it in the bud in one fell swoop with the power of dragon fire behind him. And that as the um, High Septon assembled all of his loyal forces of the Faith Militant in the Sept to announce their defiance, to prepare their authority, to continue to lead this increased rebellion against the, against the Targaryen rule, Makor ordered his forces to box them in, to confine them to the hill upon which the uh, Sept was then built. And then as they're boxed in, as they're chained inside this holy relic, the largest um, church of the faith in all of the Seven Kingdoms, he brought Balerion, still the most powerful dragon in the world, and likely still today the most powerful dragon that ever lived, at least in the courted history, down upon them and incinerated every single person that was there, killing possibly thousands in the process. It was an incredible act of cruelty that served only to further inspire the resistance of the faith. It turned what was still relatively localized and focused around the leadership phenomenon into something that was very much a popular uprising against the Targaryen rule that they could ill afford in this early stage of their authority. That the poor fellows, the various other knightly followers, um, Knights, of Seven, Knights of the Stars, I think there's something along those lines, started cropping up everywhere in a way that they could no longer control. 
that Makor spent the basis of his entire rule thereafter trying to put down this religious uprising that he'd attempted to nip in the bud through abject carnage, but all it did was to earn him the hate that fueled further rebellion. It took his death literally to the Iron Throne. He was found dead, impaled on his throne, leading to more than a little bit of symbology that the throne itself had rejected him for his cruelty and his crimes upon the people of Westeros, and took his uh, successor, Jaehaerys, the conciliator, to offer peace terms, to offer a degree of common ground, to offer a measure of conciliation by which the Seven Kingdoms could be brought back together. One can debate, and historians do, whether it was pushing the faith to the brink from the carnage of Makor that allowed this kind of peace to happen. But regardless, Makor is dismissed by all of history as the wor one of the worst rulers that ever set the Iron Throne, if not the worst, certainly the most brutal and hateful. While his successor, who brought peace, who offered terms, who took those who had defied his authority and instead granted them an opportunity to stand again in common support, is regarded as, one of the, as the greatest Targaryen king that ever lived. And so I think that's a lesson to Danny that if she really does aim to rule with fear, she's got all the tools necessary to do it. But if she inflicts carnage that seems to exist for no purpose other than purposeful enjoyment and aggrandizement, that's all she's going to be remembered for. That the fear that she's hoping to create will turn to hatred and will turn to defiance. And I hope we see over the course of this next, next episode how the rest of Westeros regards her. And I think it's notable in the trailers that we saw that the only forces we saw assembled before her to greet her into the city were those that she brought to other seas, those slaves that she'd offered freedom but now seemed to find a degree of comfort in servile loyalty to her cause. So that that is just a brief little itinerary of prior Targaryen destruction with dragons and how they can be used and how they can't, and the dangers that Danny is falling into from continuing so many other characters' lack of understanding of history. Too long, didn't read... Danny's just off on an island here. Even other Targaryen kings have not done this. I mean, she is she's unprecedented. Yeah, it, it is. No one has ever gone this far. Not. I mean, the only closest thing we have is the ancient Valerians themselves, and that's long enough back in history that we can't know whether that's poetic license or not. They certainly were looking to inflict wholesale devastation in a way that cannot be imagined. But it's in like telling stories about the evils of magical demons rather than telling something about actual history. Uh, okay. That's the closest comparison. Yep. All right. Passes again. Now, we have a new segment. You ready for it? Uh, yeah. I got one more book, one more book nerd bitching if you want to do it, but tell me what the new segment is. Well, do you want to do it or not? Tell me. Because, our, well, we have fans and we have fan questions. Oh, well, we got to do that. But, but uh, I, you know, I'll do this as a coda for the next episode then in terms of last bit of book nerd bitching just because how much fun it is. But for the next one, I want to discuss just a little bit about... Why everybody, about the prior history of Northerners coming south and how much it has set their reputation and how awesome it is, just as a degree of celebration of Northern armies in a way that we may never get to have again, just from their abject brutality we saw at play here. Yeah, okay, there's a tease. Mm -hmm. um, all right, fan questions, you ready? Yeah, what you got? What happens if Danny tells John she's pregnant with his child in the next episode? <sighs> That is a fun and interesting question. It's a conversation I don't imagine they'll ever have. Um, but if it did happen, I think I'm at the point now, at least I hope so, that John, as Ned Stark's heir, would at this point be willing to ruin his own honor if it's necessary to protect the realm, to protect its people, to do the action that is hard and difficult and permanently shaming if it is called for. And so I think even if he told if that was told at this point, John would still have to carry out his duty 
and in the threat that Danny is. I think it might affect him. It might make him hesitate for a second, but I don't think it would stop him. Yeah, I mean, I if this happened, I just think then we would be like locked in for Arya killing Danny and not John. You, that, you th- that's my guess. You think it would it would stop John in his tracks? Uh, he, he would hesitate, and, and it, you know, and also would probably be like Arya would hear that and be like, okay, okay, John, take a knee. I got this one. This is a little tough for you. I mean, at this point, we got three people that are gunning for di- for Danny in terms of John, Arya, and Tyrion. It's just a question of who's going to get to pull, who's going in any position to pull the trigger. And I, I, I'm willing. I agree that if this is what Danny opens with, which I don't think they are, I don't think that that's, that's where they're going to go. It would at least make John hesitate. I just don't think it would stop him. Yeah. Um, next question. Um, assuming Danny dies in the next episode, what happens to Drogon? I don't know. I mean, I. Here's a fun little point at this point of where. I have a hard time necessarily caring what happens to a lot of these characters just because I'm so numbed by what they've thrown at me over the course of this season. But if Drogon dies, I'm going to be legitimately sad in a way I didn't think I still could. I think he just fucks off. I think if I, Danny dies, he just he just takes off to like the ruins of Valeria and just hangs out there. I mean, I think if it's, it, I I think Drogon's likely to live, and I think if he sees Danny die and sees John or whoever else do it. He may, for a certain degree, acknowledge John's authority, but John just lets him go to be free in the world. Rather yeah, than, I don't think he—I don't think he submits to John. I really don't. I, I, even if he did, I don't think John would accept it. Yeah. No. Okay. Fair point. Last question, um, Spencer. Is there any chance that Tormund is there to console Brienne in the final episode? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even thought of that. I hope so, so much. No, none at all. We're not going to see anybody in the north. I don't think in the next episode. If it is, oh, it's at the oh. very. If it if, if it is, it's at the very end. Maybe in, maybe briefly receiving messages, but in terms of any time, large amount of time spent in the north, I don't think it's going to be there. Okay. Yeah, but, and then we could then we can just jump into our final uh, the final thing to cover, which is just predictions for the final episode. Um, I'll give you one, which is a counter to what you just said. I do think we see the north. I actually think we see Sansa in King's Landing. I think Sansa comes back to either help John rule or rule herself. Interesting. That's possible. I think it's more likely to see Sansa, see Sansa spend significant time in King's Landing than to spend significant time in Winterfell. Um, yeah, I think that's a reasonable enough bet that we'll see Sansa to some degree. I think a large point hinges on whether we think John's going to sit the throne, and I got money that he won't. Um... All right, that's one prediction. Um, my prediction, I, I've got money on John killing Danny, and I'm still sticking with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny dying, um, I think we both are in agreement of. I'll only do one more, and that's one I've, I've talked about. I do think we're getting John v. Grey Worm. Can't wait to see it. Not quite sure who's the better fighter. Um, Grey, Worm, I think, Grey Worm does. You think Grey Worm gets it? I, I don't necessarily think John's the one that does it. Arya may be the one that offers the coup de grace, but Grey Worm's dead. Yeah. He's going to have to if somebody kills Danny. Um, last question, and this is just the last degree of prophecy we can uh, prediction we can offer. What is the very last scene of the show? John in the north. John riding north. In the north, like he, he, like he, I don't know, like he's outside looking at the countryside, or he's in Winterfell or something. I don't know. I mean, it, not, all of it sounds hokey when you try to you, you put a final scene to it. So I don't know. But I think I think John in the North, Sansa ruling in King's Landing is about about as 
sure of anything as I can possibly be at this point. Uh, I think that's reasonable. I'm not, I'm not as certain about whether Sansa tries to take the throne, but in terms of John going back north, I think they have foreshadowed that, and I think it's in keeping with his character. That that is all. That's probably one of the only moments he was ever truly happy. Uh, yep. was in that life and in that freedom north of the wall. And I think he can, never can have that again, but I think he still will try to go back to it. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on final scene? I think that I, very much what you said is probably very accurate. I think... Okay. All right. I, I mean, it depends how just bitter they want to do. I mean, they could end it with John cradling Danny's body after killing her. They could end it with John defying the Iron Throne, defying dragons, and marching off north. But I, it's some—it's going to be some bitter, sweet kind of moment like that at best. Okay. All right. You heard it here, folks. Uh, get ready for John to actually take the throne and prove both of us wrong. <laughs> at this point, yeah. The moment we've said it, we've guaranteed it. Guaranteed, what we've predicted is not happening, and the exact opposite will occur. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's it for the episode. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, may I said I think this episode had some magnificent moments of cinematography, some ma- magnificent moments of working music in, some direct emotional effect in the exact way that they intended. I think it fails in the plotting. I think it reflects the problems of the show the last two seasons really embodied very, very well. And it, 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 while it surprised me, I think those surprises are in some way a cheat just due to their own structural problems they have from the corner they've been backed into okay um that's it for the got guy questions podcast thanks everybody for joining us check out our other podcasts in the mangum talks podcast channel we have mangum reads we have whiskey on the weekends both of which are really really good check them out go to itunes subscribe like us comment all that stuff is great spencer i look forward to talking to you on sunday night after we uh, watch the finale of Game of Thrones series finale should be a, a raucous good time. I look forward to us seeing Sansa again for no other purpose than to rub it in your face that she's been right all along and is clearly the smartest most capable person to ever rule and I am touched that you have finally recognized that here on the bitter end. Waited for the last 20 seconds for that victory lap. Well deserved though my friend. Well deserved. Enjoyed it Spencer. Till next time man. See you.